Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Oh, good morning, everyone. It's Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. So lovely that we could all be together this morning talking. And we've got a great show lined up. Um, first up, we're talking... With Ashley Church, we're doing a, a deep discussion of the history of the current conflict in the Middle East, seeing if we can at least get the facts on the table. And again, uh, nothing about this is is easy. So open to suggestions and criticisms so we can get to the truth. Text me 2057, email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. Also, we're going to be talking about solar farms and the Wairapa. What are they? What's going on? Why are the neighbours upset? We're going to be talking to Elizabeth Creevy about what's happening in her neighbourhood. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference.
You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text 2053 and email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. Oh, my goodness. I got a lot of kickback when I came out in support of Israel. And I feel a bit bad about it because I'm not schooled in the history of the region and people would send me things that I must read and I did my best to read it. But the way I've always looked at it is in a simple way and I just want to be all up front and put my cards on the table. That to me Israel is an open society with universalistic principles as Prof Rata would say, that is to say that the rule of law applies, everyone is treated equally. And around them are countries that are closed societies that are tribal. And that these closed societies have it, that they want to destroy Israel by fear, means, and foul. And again, the way I look at it is that Israel wants to defend itself, not destroy others. I don't go much beyond that, I'm afraid, in my understanding. I try to. And I'm anxious that we have this debate and discussion, and I would love to have someone on to put the counter-argument, and I'm happy to. But to help us understand, and as a first cut, I read a great piece by Ashley Church, who we've had on before. And he, if you like, has put Israel's case. Now, in doing that, he's got a lot of kickback and um, also a lot of support because it's a, apparently a fraught issue. And it's an issue where we tread with some caution because we don't want to upset people to have people slamming the, the, the phone down, as it were. But we want to prove that in our open society, we can debate and discuss matters that are important, matters of life and death. I personally think that Western civilization is at stake with this. It's sort of like West Berlin surrounded by East Germany to me, this little island of peace and prosperity. But again, I'm open to the debate. Ashley, good morning. Good morning, Roddy. That was a very, very good opening. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Disappointed to hear that this has been such a fraud issue, but not entirely surprised. And maybe as we sort of circle back toward the end of this issue, we can talk about the sort of the overall reason why that might be the case, because I've got some views on that. But yes, well, right. The 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 because there's a whole lot of different levels, yeah, with which people approach this. And I mean, in the conservative and the Republican movement in the US, it's a huge debate. People that I respect, yep, um, are not wanting America to support Israel on the basis that um, it's not America's fight, and. So there are there are it's not all your Chloe Swarbrooks who are just singing what is the popular cause. No. There's a lot of deep 
discussion of this, and then you go down to some pretty horrible anti-Semiticism. Yep. But you can't accuse people that disagree with us simply of being anti-Semitic because no. they're not all, right? Not all. <laughs> um, so we have to be careful yep. about how we approach it. And and I can't help myself but put a stake in the ground because I'm 100% Israel and I feel strongly about it because to me, they're wanting to be left alone. But again, I'd love to have the debate. It's, but let's start with you, Ashley. Sure. Tell us, uh, you wrote this great piece and you said, let's yep. just get the facts on the table. And obviously mm. the facts are contentious, but so people mm. might want to disagree with them. But mm. tell me, why has this become an issue? You know, this is, this, we don't hear about the Ukraine anymore. You always, always imagine that that war's over, right? Ukraine's not a war anymore. Poor Mr. Zelensky's being missed out on. And that war I have no interest in. I don't support that at all hmm. um, because it's like tin pot dictators fighting amongst each other, and I'd stay out of that one. Tell me where this one started. So just you opened by saying you weren't schooled in this issue. Um, this is an issue I do consider myself schooled in. It's a, it's a topic, Israel and, and, and the Jewish people in general, that I've been sort of immersed in for over half my life in terms of trying to understand it. And I had a reason for that. You and I talked some months ago about faith, and it relates to faith. So, so you know, I should put that on the table and be transparent about it. Um, but I've spent a lot of time understanding the history, the background, why the situations developed, the rights and the wrongs, um, et cetera. And so when when this thing blew up on the 7th of October, this 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 atrocious, barbaric slaughter of uh of 200 and uh, sorry of 1200 uh jewish people and and the kidnap of about 240 others by by uh, hamas by uh, terrorists um like a lot of people i decided i needed to to wade into this and sort of bring some some facts to it and i started I've, i think i've told you before i've got a, a a profile on linkedin which is a social media platform with about 25,000 connections and so i wrote a piece on that which was really just talking about the fact that sort of lamenting the fact that the world had initially been quite supportive and you remember in that first few days there was support mm. from world leaders and you know the Auckland Museum lit itself up there was a lot of stuff that that was actually quite good to see but that changed quite quickly and the narrative changed as a result of the um the supposed bombing of a hospital in in uh, in Gaza by by Israel which it turned out a few days later in fact wasn't by the Israeli can I just stop you there actually yeah, sure how do we know that 1,400 people were killed and 240 were taken hostage. I know that sounds a silly question. Yeah, and I'm going to put that but back you to know, you. But you know how you have propaganda on different sides, yep. and I readily accuse Hamas of huge propaganda. Yep. And then people say to me, well, you just saw Israel and the West's propaganda. How do we know? Well, I'm going to put that back on you, Rodney. If this was any other country, because we're not talking about a terrorist group, we're talking about a nation. Hamas is a terrorist group. Israel is a nation. If this were any other nation, if this were Ukraine, um, if this were any, certainly if it was any other Western nation, nobody would even ask that question. No one would even think to ask that question. They would accept that a government would uh, would tell them what the numbers were. For some reason, 
we have seeded this bed of doubt when it comes to Israel that we simply don't apply to any other nation. So that in itself should cause us to actually examine not just that question, but why we're asking it in the first place. And that'll come back to, you know, I'd like to, to, to sort of sum up at the end about where I think the sort of whole um, uh, anti-Semitic spirit comes from. But so, so I'm going to put that back to you and say nobody asked it. However, so, so you either believe the Israelis or you don't. I do. And the Israelis uh, uh, agencies have come back and they've told us. And by the way, they came out with a number originally of 1,400 Israelis or, or internationals. They've subsequently, subsequently come back and said, um, in fact, we now believe about 200 of those were actually terrorists. Now, nobody else would have done that. Nobody would have come back and said, actually, our first number was wrong. We think it's actually lower than that. And some of the people were actually the um, the agitators. But they have because they're honest, because they've been straightforward and honest about this. So I take that number. Well, they're clever. Place. Well, you know, I, as I say, we wouldn't apply that standard to anybody else. No. And, we need to be and also, Maybe. too, we have an open press. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And 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 we have people on the ground there, whereas whereas we didn't have people on the ground in, in, in Gaza until just fairly recently, until the IDF's actually opened that up. But let me come back to the point I was making before. So I, so I, I, did, I did an initial post on this. And and it got a lot of, bit of trend, uh, trended and, and did pretty well. But I looked at that and I thought, well, you know, the problem with that was like so much of the other stuff that it was coming out about the whole conflict at that time um, was that it was really difficult to keep up with what, in my opinion, was misinformation that was coming from primarily from Hamas, but also from from groups uh, in the Western world who who claimed to be in support of peace. And I'll talk about that in a little while. And it's a bit like a game of whack-a-mole. If you know that game, it's a game where you yes. whack something and as soon as you whack it, something else comes up. This whole debate is is like a game of whack-a-mole in that when you deal with an issue and you put facts in place and fix it, um, another one comes up. And so you're constantly battling it. So anyway, the reason for that to answer your question is I thought, well, I need to do something that's a bit more comprehensive. So I, first I thought I would do an article. And then I then when I was going through it, I thought, well, there's a lot of moving parts here, so I need to actually answer lots of things. So that developed into a kind of a Q&A format. And uh, that Q&A format became quite long. And so I ended up with what I've got now, which is basically a series of questions, starting with the attack on the 7th of October and going right through to asking some more holistic and general questions about the role of the Middle East and, you know, where Israel fits into that and who Hamas is, et cetera. Um, and, and I put that out there and that's just blown up. It's it's uh, it's become um, it's become a default uh, resource, I think, for a lot of organizations who've seen it as a very easy to understand because it's written in very simple language. I'm a simple man. Um, but the other thing that it does is it's about a 21 minute read. So it's not quick. There's a lot there, but you can either read it as one thing or you can just look at the questions that relate to things that you're curious about. And the other thing I've done is I've actually embedded quite a bit of information within the um, within the various different articles themselves. So you can actually click on a link and it will take you to videos and all sorts of other stuff. So it's actually quite deep. You can go into it into whatever detail you like. And some of that, because you're going to ask me this, some of that's uh, partisan, as you would imagine. Some of it's people who come from a particular viewpoint. But a lot of it comes from independent sources. A lot of it comes from sources that you would, in theory, not question. So... I've tried as much as possible to make it something which just deals with the facts, albeit with a bit of partisan information on the side. But there's a there's a factual string that runs all the way through this mm. thing. So and it can be it can be found at ashleychurch.com. Yes, it can. Or if or or another place to go for it if you want to go directly to the document is uh, uh, voicesforisrael.co.nz, and I've redirected that. So if you go to that address, it'll take you directly to the page. Or you can go to ashleychurch.com and you can find it on there and it's pretty easy to find. Um, so either of those ways is a way of getting into it. 
So tell us, the latest conflict started yep. on this 7th of October. October, 6.30 in the morning. What actually happened? Yes, yeah, so um, as far as we can tell from from the information that's come down to us, uh, the uh, Hamas launched an attack on Israel, and that included uh, hundreds of indiscriminately fired rockets. There were uh, balaclava-clad fighters dropping from paragliders to cross over the border from Gaza into Israel, and there were ground assaults on civilians in their homes and on city streets, and also one at a music festival where a pretty uh, disgusting slaughter took place. Um, and so the result of that was was the 1,200 people that we mentioned before who've been killed, 240 um, dragged back into Israel to, to to God knows what unknown fate. Um, and you know, I don't want to shock your, your your listeners, but the nature of the atrocities, Rodney, were were horrific. There was there was rape, um, torture. There was the beheading of babies. Uh, there was the putting of babies in microwave ovens. Now, the people who claim that this was carried out by freedom fighters, freedom fighters don't do that. Freedom fighters who might have a cause that they are advocating on behalf of a particular position that they hold uh, don't perform those sorts of atrocities. This this was at a level and of a type that we we haven't seen uh, in the Western world for generations. It was a, it was a horrific that, attack. The, the claim of barbarism, um, one kickback you get is, oh, well, they didn't really behead babies. And you think, well, so it's okay, they just killed babies. But funnily enough, the barbarism is inexplicable to me. Were they drugged up? Oh. Who, who knows? Possibly drugged up on sort of a religious frenzy. Um, you know whether they were whether they were drugged up by some sort of physical compound. Who knows? Um, by the way, the the issue around the beheading of babies. Uh, if anybody who reads it, I deal with that. It's, there's there's links there to actually to prove that they claim they weren't beheaded. It's not true. Um, so that information's all on there for anybody who's interested to know that. Because um, what what I mean, because this is what was the proximal start of this thing. Two things, two questions to you. If you wanted to provoke uh, a war, you claim that atrocities were committed. Yep. And we see this all the way back to the year dot, particularly World War One. The Germans did all these atrocities and it fires yep. people up. So in a funny way, because I find it hard to believe that a human being would cut the head off a baby and do these things, it's easy to be skeptical about these atrocities. And you're saying they're using these atrocities to whip me up. There's there's some truth in that, and I, and you know propaganda is is a tool of war. You're quite right, and so there are you know that's that's certainly been used by nations in the past. I think the thing that mitigates here, though, in favour of it being more likely to be true than not, was just with the speed with which that came out. So you remember that the attacks happened on the seventh of October. The the speed at which we got uh, detail of what had taken place was very very quick. It was within an hour or two. Um, and so what we would be what we would have to believe in order to believe that the scale of the atrocities wasn't as it's been presented was that not only was this that was was the scale of this discovered but this cover story supposedly that the IDF or whoever was supposed to have put this out was developed in that very very short space of time mm. um before anybody had really come to terms with what had even happened or why so i just find that really difficult to believe you know when it's over the last month or so or longer that this thing's been playing out 
that we've started to try and dissect this and claim that things didn't happen. You to, to, in order to do that, you have to believe that they made this cover story up extraordinarily quickly, um, as I say, within hours, um, and then that, that somehow stuck. I just find that, 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 that I'd be incredulous at the, at the likelihood of that having happened. Well, the international press aren't whooping this up, and if yep. there was an ability, if there was some dodger, it's not like the, the press were all in favour of the COVID lockdowns and yep. you couldn't get a story up the other way. If there was a story to show that Israel had misbehaved, that would fly around the world now. Oh, heart. totally. Well, well, in fact, we've got an example of that, the the, the so-called the hospital. Of the, the hospital, yeah, yeah. which, which um, and what was interesting about that, because one of the things, that, one of the claims I hear around this is that how the information's coming from an objective source in, in the form of the, the um, uh, Gaza Health Ministry. Um, the Gaza Health Ministry is an arm of Hamas. I don't know whether people are aware of that. It's an arm of Hamas, and all the information that comes from it, uh, it comes through the, the lens of, of, of an Hamas perspective. Um, and it was interesting because when that attack took place, and I can't remember whether it was the Gaza Health Ministry or whether it was Hamas themselves, but within seconds of that bomb hitting, uh, they had magically managed to come up with a number of 500 people that had been killed. Yes. It, wasn't, it wasn't an hour or two later or a, a day later. It was literally within a with within a few minutes that the, the the world media was being told that 500 people had died, and so and and then BBC, uh, you know the New York Times publications that aren't necessarily friendly to Israel came out very quickly, accepted that narrative, and ran with it for a couple of days. Yes. Now, when subsequent investigation proved that in fact uh, it wasn't uh, an Israeli airstrike, it was. A, uh, a misfired uh, bomb, either from Hamas themselves or from another terrorist organization within the Gaza Strip, and it hadn't hit the hospital. It hit a car park next door, um, and not that this mitigates it in any way, but there wasn't 500 deaths. There were there, there, there were possibly none, and if there were any, and the hospital was still standing, the hospital was still standing. It's still it's still there now. Um, but by the time that had happened, by the time that had been corrected by by a variety of different agencies, it was too late. It had, it had gone around the world five times, and people believed it and used it part of the as part of the mantra and the narrative. And that's the that's the whack a mole thing. That's right. That's exactly. And then what the, the, the interesting thing too was, we can say that the BBC were quick to run that story. So there, if there was any chink in the Israeli story. It would fly around the world, not like the gaping holes in the COVID story. Totally. In fact, I watched something yesterday, and it was comical if this topic wasn't so serious. And it was a uh, it was a um, a parody where they were talking about how the BBC would never forgive Israel for not uh, bombing a hospital. Um, because, <laughs> yeah, I saw yeah that. because because the BBC so wanted that to be true because that fitted the narrative that they that they take. Now, here's another question, Ashley, and it's tough to put you on the spot. No, go for it. Um, the Israelis are amazing. Yep. They've got amazing defences. They've got an amazing security. They're under attack the whole time. They're knocking yep. missiles out of the sky. How did Hamas manage to get over that border? Um, so it's interesting you should ask that. So and it comes back to another question I should answer in order to answer this. One of the claims that you get all the time is that Israel occupies Gaza. Israel doesn't occupy Gaza. Gaza is a discrete a uh, default state that's been operating as such for almost 20 years. So uh, Israel was certainly in Gaza up until 2005. In 2005, they pulled out. In fact, not only did they pull out, they actually forcibly removed Israeli settlers who lived in They're Gaza. They're much upset. 
too much upset, yeah, to make sure yeah. that they would leave the Gazan people to to establish their own state. And that and was part of a peace process. No, it wasn't. The peace process failed, and so uh, um, Israel did that on its uh, on its own behest. That basically, okay. yeah. So so they did it. They pulled out, and and uh, they they assisted with elections, which took place. And inexplicably, the people of Gaza decided that they were going to elect Hamas, which is a terrorist organization with a, a mantra which is about the destruction of Israel, um, and effectively turned it into to a, a military terrorist base over the next 20 years. Now, the reason that's important is because Israel has not been in there for almost 20 years. It's been run by, by Hamas with support from Qatar and from Egypt and from Jordan and from a couple of other countries which financially support it, and also from the United Nations. Um, and Israel's only real role is that they provide humanitarian support into their um on, on a regular basis. Uh so and over the last uh four or five years, and this is where there, there was a, a failure in Israeli's intelligence services, um, because almost 20 years has passed, uh Israel has been, I, I think it's probably fair to say, less and less concerned about the risk that, that Gaza might have presented to them as a security uh risk. And so they have taken their eye off the ball. And and Netanyahu's been quite open about this. He came out a few weeks ago and basically said that it was their mistake and they needed to fix it. And so the sort of of um, uh, security that may well have been in place if they'd taken this more seriously wasn't there. So there, so there were idea forces obviously uh, on the other side of the wall, but not in the sort of numbers that would have been required to have repelled this attack. Um, so they were able to do it a because the IDF had basically taken its eye off the ball. Um, and B, because this thing had been coordinated and planned over a long period of time. What about the story that um, the Green MP, Marima Davidson, she went through some blockade and that um, Israel is keeping the Gaza Strip blockaded and there's a prison camp? How does oh. that work? Well, so so firstly, you, but, but, Put that into the context that I just described, which is that Hamas is a terrorist organization. So you have a terrorist organization effectively running a default state for the last almost 20 years. Um, and so that's presented for a long time to Israel a security threat. So Israel, quite rightly, in the same way that any nation that had a belligerent um, um, combatant uh, in a neighboring nation would defend itself, has has basically tried to do that in a way that protects Israeli citizens. So that yes, there is a wall on the Israeli side, um, so a blockade is a pretty emotive term to basically say that Israel's made quite sure over most of that time um, that, that terrorists haven't spilled out into Israel. And we've seen the, the consequences of, that, of, of exactly that happening and why it was wise that they took those actions so, over so much of that time. But they're not the only nation that's got a border with, with Gaza. Egypt also has a border with Gaza. And Egypt also... Uh, makes it very, very difficult for Gazan residents to to cross over the border into Egypt. Now, you don't hear that from anybody. Nobody attacks Egypt for the position that they take. All of the opprobrium and the criticism is aimed at Israel because the because the political issue and the and the narrative is around trying to attack Israel and the Jewish people, not trying to attack the Egyptians. How does Gaza Gaza people get food? Does it come in by ship or plane or how yeah, and- how, how does how does it trade if it's got a blockade or a war with Israel and the Egyptians have a war? How does it cope? So, so, so goods and services and food and everything else still get through in the normal way. So, when you talk about a blockade, that blockade's a military blockade. It's not a blockade to services and other things. There's stopping there are, weapons. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so everything else that you would expect. 
uh, to, to get through to a normal society does. And by the way, that's the other thing. We use this term refugee, and that, that term is used in the case of Israel in both the West Bank and Gaza. It's a kind of an emotive term to give the impression of people living in tents with donkeys. This is These are, these are reasonably modern cities. I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures that have, mm. that have come out as a result of this, but these are cities with hospitals and schools and roads and shopping malls and, and, and all of the things that you would expect in a modern society. And those societies function more so in the case of the West Bank, which was run by Fatah, um, but to a lesser to a lesser case on the case of Gaza, because because Hamas is a terrorist organisation, but they run as effectively as 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 normal um, modern societies, um, <clears throat> and those things that you've just described, food, uh, humanitarian goods, etc., they get through as you would expect. In, it used in, to be a tourist destination, I believe. Gaza, yeah. I don't know about that. I I, I, I can imagine why it would be. It's a beautiful part of the world. It's on the Mediterranean coast. It's a fantastic spot of the world. And if it was being run by people who 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 were weren't sort of crazed maniacs, um, it, it could be a, a, a mecca. Interestingly, some years ago, the Israelis uh, held their hand out to to um, the government in, in uh, Gaza and and offered to work with them to effectively make it into a Middle Eastern version of Singapore. Um, and they were going to help to turn it into a, a tech hub and do a whole range of things, train people, educate them, invest money into it, do whatever they could to build the economy up. Um, Hamas uh, rejected that point blank. And what's the UN's role in the Gaza Strip? So the UN's got a number of roles. It's it's at a at a holistic uh, level at the, in the UN headquarters in New York. Um, the the UN is probably the the single biggest. Uh, critic of of Israel, and the reason for that, before jump somebody jumps up and says, "Well, there you go, see the UN, even the UN's not uh, in favour of Israel," uh, is because there is a block, and I'm just trying to remember the name. There is a block within the UN which is essentially a a coalition of of um, Islamic nations uh, around the world, which which collectively makes up uh, enough to control the votes in the UN. Um, and that group uh, every year passes a series of, I think, from memory, 21 resolutions that are anti-Israel. Now, to put that into context, there are about 28 resolutions passed by the UN in any given year, which are uh, against the ruling powers in any particular nation. Six or seven of those are against every other nation in the world, and the other 21 or 22 of them are against Israel. And they're the same resolutions every year. They just get keep getting voted on and passed again and again. Mm -hmm. So if you looked at that as an dispassionate observer from the outside, you'd say, well, that's terrible. If there, if there are so many votes against Israel, it must be a terrible place. It's actually to do with the political balance and the way that the UN is structured and the way that its voting is actually carried out by various different aligned nations. Um, the second thing that it does is uh, it set up uh, quite some years ago an agency called the United Nations Relief Works Agency, UNRWA. You've probably heard that term. Um, and UNRWA is an agency specifically set up within the UN to support the Palestinians. So it has no other remit except to support the Palestinians. Now, there is another agency within the UN also for refugees called the uh, United Nations uh, Human Rights. I can't remember its name, but it's, it's it also has a remit for refugees, but that's all of the other refugees in the entire world. So there's one for the Palestinians and there's one for all the other refugees on the planet. And the funding per capita that goes into UNRWA is significantly higher than the funding per capita that goes into the, um, to the other agency. Um, so there's a significant amount of money that goes into UNRWA. Now, why that's an issue is because UNRWA is repeatedly uh, censured by uh, Western nations around the world for how it spends that money. 
So that money goes into uh, support of Hamas. It goes into armaments. Um, it goes into material going into schools within um, within uh, Gaza and the West uh, Bank, uh, which teach kids to hate Jews and to encourage them to kill them um, and to and, and to become uh, um, uh, effectively combatants on behalf of Hamas. Um, and you know, I'm not making any of this stuff up, Rodney. You, no, it's, it's no. You go looking for it. Um, it's it's been a huge issue over the last few years now. You would think, well, if that's happening, the UN would close this agency down or it would completely reform it. It's refused to do so despite uh, the US actually stopped funding it. The US decided it was so horrific that it was actually not going to fund it anymore. Um, and other Western nations are taking a pretty dim view of it and consistently censuring UNRWA um, and censuring the UN for its role in what's been happening. Mm. And while we're on that topic, what support and aid does the US give Israel? Um, it, 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 in various different forms. So firstly, and probably most significantly, of the 15-odd million Jews that live on the planet, uh, about 8 million of them, 7.5 to 8 million of them are in, actually it'd be a little less than that because there's other people in Israel as well, but let's say 7 million of them in Israel, uh, about that number again are in the United States. And so, so there is a huge amount of philanthropic and personal support that comes from uh, the US uh, to Israel for obvious reasons in the same way that I guess any nation would do. Um, and so that's a pretty significant source of support. Um, but the other way is, is also through military collaboration, through trade. Um, there is there is definitely some financial support um, from the US. The US has been a strong and erstwhile supporter of, of, of uh, Israel pretty much since its inception as a nation, as indeed, to be fair, were Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and a range of other nations in, in, in Europe who also saw in Israel, I think, probably the aspirations of, of democracy and the sorts of things that they wanted to bring to that part of the world. Um, and it's only really in the last 20 or 30 years that that started to change and that the narrative in those nations has moved from being very supportive and very much in the camp of wanting to do everything they could to support Israel uh, to becoming one which is much more influenced by sort of an agenda which has got other things at, at, at play. Because the Jewish lobby in America is significant because yes, of the is. numbers and the money. And so you see leading politicians in America very wary of not wanting to upset their donors and their support. Um, these things are tough to understand and very tough to discuss. So what is it that Hamas is trying to achieve? Right. So Hamas isn't even secretive about what it wants. So so that's the other thing that I find so inexplicable about this. It's not that Hamas has got some sort of subversive agenda that you need to to scratch below the surface to uncover. They're very, very open. I'll give them credit for that. They're a they're a militant Islamic jihadist movement. They they started or they emerged in 1988. Um and 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 they now rule the Gaza Strip, which is to the southwest of Israel. Um, their name is an acronym for, a, I won't try and read you the Arabic word, but it bas it's an acronym which basically means Islamic resistance movement. Incidentally, in Hebrew, the word Hamas means violence, which is interesting. Um, and, and Hamas is very much driven by the same kinds of objectives which 
motivated ISIS, which wasn't an organization that I saw the world rushing to support or uh, to to label as freedom fighters, as they have done with, with Hamas. So they took control in 2006. They have a thing called the Hamas Charter. And the Hamas Charter is, is basically their founding document. And it's quite a long and rambling document talking about their purposes. But essentially what they say in that document is a number of things. They say that they see as their goal um, the conversion, and I'm not making this up, Rodney. People can go. It's on. It's in this article. I went and had a look myself. Yeah, it basically says that their role is to convert convert the world to an extremist form of Islamic uh, Islamism and Islamic control, starting with Israel. So they see Israel as kind of the trigger point, and so their their focus at the moment is destroy Israel and then destroy the rest of the world. Now, again, not making that up. That's what the document actually says. The trouble so, with it again, it's a bit. Sorry to interrupt. I'll That's get right. total for that too. I'm feeling very delicate. <laughs> at the moment. Um, it's like the beheadings of the babies. It's almost comic book. Yep. And therefore quite hard for us in the West to appreciate that there could be such an organization. As Mind you, say, it even says, just to interrupt you, it even says that in the charter. It actually talks about, in fact, I'll see if I can find you the exact quote because it's uh, um, – uh, they actually use the phrase uh, that the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight Jews and kill them. That's a that's a quote from the from the charter. So this yes. is an organisation saying let's use political means. They're saying kill Jews, and this is something that MPs in our parliament are happy to support. Yep, which is horrific. I mean, that, that, uh, and this is why you, I struggle with it because I'm thinking, hang on, a moment's thought of this is not me or America or Israel ascribing a motive to Hamas. This is Hamas saying what it wants to do and Helen Clark saying time for a ceasefire and Chloe Swarbrick is saying, yes, I support Gaza, the Palestinian people in their cause. It, it also feeds into a second part of this narrative, which is, again, one of these things people have been captured by, and it's the idea that, because uh, and you talk about a ceasefire, it's the idea that you would solve this by creating a Palestinian state. And, and so that's a really strongly, widely held view, that if only we would we would we'd create a Palestinian state for the Palestinians, all of this would go away. Rodney, that's, that's complete nonsense. Um, firstly, let me be clear, there's actually not one Palestinian territory uh, next to Israel, there's two. So on on its on one side on the Jordanian side there's there's an area called the West Bank people will have heard of that and that's controlled by an organisation called Fatah um, which is which is democratic and which while has its issues with with Israel um, it, 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 at this stage in its history anyway appears to be a more responsible organisation in respect of discharging its duties to its people then you've got the Gaza Strip and the Gaza Strip is on the Mediterranean it's on the southwest side of Israel it's at the bottom down by Egypt. And the Gaza Strip is a completely separate authority, nothing to do with the West Bank, and it has another government of its own, and that government has Hamas. Now, Hamas have made it quite clear they're not interested in a, in a two-state solution. Uh, the, Hamas have basically said, this isn't about two states, this is about completely destroying Israel and having all of that, that territory uh, for us to form our caliphate and then you know, as the rest of the charter goes on to talk about establishing that in, in other parts of the world. So the idea of a ceasefire and, and leading towards some sort of solution, uh, two-state solution has, has, has been advocated, uh, isn't what Hamas themselves are saying. Would you describe, sorry? 
I was just going to say, incidentally, there have been seven different attempts since 1937, all and and from 1948, all on Israel's side, um, to form a separate state, uh, a Palestinian state, and every single one of those offers has been rejected by the Palestinians. Every single one of them. The one in 2000, uh, in 2000, uh, which was put forward by Israel, was actually a really significant one. It talked about giving up substantial tracts of land. Uh, uh, significant assistance to to the Palestinians, um, giving them their own capital in Jerusalem, which is a major sticking point, uh, and they walked away. They didn't walk away because it wasn't enough. They walked away because that's not their motive. That's not what they want. What they want to do is destroy Israel. So that we, when we get Chloe Swarbrook and, and Golrez Garaman and some of these nutters that don't actually understand the issue talking about from the river to the sea, they're talking about the Jordan River, to the Mediterranean Ocean and everything in between, which just happens to be the land of Israel. That um, river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is horrific. It's, it's beyond horrific, Rosalie. It's it's a it's a death chant. It's a death chant, and. What does Chloe think? It sounds cool. What does she think? Well, you, you are, if you believe her, so she came out a couple of days later, I see, and apologised. So you either take her at, at, at face value and take her at her word and say she didn't understand, in which case she's naive and stupid and shouldn't be in that role, uh, or she's lying and she does know what it means and she's only apologised because she's been caught out. It can only be one of those two things. So she, she she's either unfit for office uh, or, or, or in either case, in fact, she's unfit for office. So... Yeah, well, it's was... a it's a pretty significant thing to go on camera as a public figure and chant a slogan yep. and not think what does the slogan mean. Yep. We also had protests down Queen Street saying globalize the intifada. Isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Now, what do you understand an intifada to be? Oh, an intifada is, is kind of a variation of what I just talked about before. It's a, it's a call to Islamic domination. So the idea behind an intifada is to rise up. It's this whole concept of rise up um, and and take over the oppressor. Uh, and that doesn't just relate to the Middle East. It relates to anywhere where, where Islam operates. I, I need to qualify that, though, by saying that, and, I, and I'll let me make up a figure, but it'll be somewhere in these sorts of percentages, 90% of, of Muslims are just decent people. They're of just course. people do, doing their own thing, getting on with their lives, um, raising their kids, paying their mortgage the same way that everybody else does. There are a very small percentage of these people who are fanatical nutters um, who who have who've got world domination in sight. And the problem we've got in the Middle East with Israel is that they actually is that one group of those nutters actually controls effectively a default nation, um, which is Gaza. Well, one of the great things I got from reading Rose Wilder Lane's book, I think it was called The Discovery of Freedom was that there was several hundred years where Islamic countries led the world for enlightenment. They did. They absolutely did. Um, and and, and the beautiful, period. beautiful um, scientific discoveries, mathematical discoveries. Yep. Um, and just like Christianity can be used to veer off people into a nasty cult, so can Islam. So we're not condemning. Are we clear? Are we clear in our minds? We're not condemning Islam. 
Oh, not only are we not condemning Islam, Rodney, but we're not condemning the Palestinians either. And that's another really important point to note is that this isn't, a, in, nothing I'm no. saying could be taken as a criticism of the Palestinians at all. The Palestinians have got some issues that they want resolved. I totally understand that. I would imagine most Palestinians would like to have their own state. The criticism is of Hamas. And the fact that the world is not, because 240 people, Rodney, 240 people pulled back into Gaza as hostages were this any other nation, this was New Zealand or Australia or anywhere else, our media would be screaming, let the hostages go, let the hostages go. You have to dig around to even find any reference to them at the moment. Yes, and well, that the should be this. 240 hostages held hostage, God knows in what condition. Totally. Totally. So that's and it's like they, they it, it sounds like they don't exist in the totally. media. Totally, be, be, because it doesn't fit the narrative of of the West and this stuff. So, so well, the, the Iranian hostage scandal, right, dominated world news for weeks, weeks, for weeks. months. Yep, yep. And I don't think the numbers matter in a funny way. No, but these were people snatched from another country, babies. 40 odd babies amongst them. Grandmothers. Yeah, this is horrific. This is horrific. So, and as no a state, talk really, really just drill down on that. This is not a criticism of Islam. I mean, I, I, I don't buy into Islam personally, but, but it's a belief system that a lot of people around the world hold perfectly entitled to. And it's not a, Christian, a, 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 a criticism of the Palestinians. It's a focus and a criticism on the animals within Hamas who need to be removed. Do you think it's helpful? to use language like animals, um, <laughs> nutters. Because um, when I hear that, yep. I think, oh, Ashley's got emotional. Now, oh, and, I, and, and when it comes to Hamas, it's a fair question. When it comes to Hamas, I am emotional. So so I would never use that language, for example, with regard to the Palestinians, uh, because they're not. They're, they're, they're Palestinians, by and large, are decent people, just, just trying to live their lives. But I do use language like that when I talk about Hamas because I use that because I want to con convey to people and emphasize to people this is not just a political group. This is not just a group that have just got a difference of opinion of how things should be done. This is a group that sanctions not just killing people, but slaughter in the most obscene and atrocious ways of people in order to make whatever sick point they think they're making. And we need to understand that instead of glorifying these people as freedom fighters, we need to understand these are terrorists. These are people, these are no different to ISIS, a group that we that the world was desperately keen to get rid of a few years ago. This is ISIS all over again in another form. And yep, so if I use a mode of language, I, I apologize, but but it's because I do feel emotional about it. This is important. This is important. The hostages being held yep. aren't just Israelis. No, Thai people, they're people from all over the world. Um Americans. Totally. Yeah. British. Yeah. That's another crazy aspect to it, right? This is it is indeed. Um, the poor German young woman who was displayed, dragged around on the back of a jeep, yeah, broken bodied, yeah, spat upon. Yeah. You can well imagine sympathizing with the Palestinian cause and desire for statehood, you can't 
sympathize with from the river to the sea, but you can sympathize with the cause for statehood. But no matter how righteous the cause, you can't cover up that image. You can't you can't not call that out. And yet we have an MPs supporting that cause without calling it out. Like am I like Chloe Swarbrook, I'm happy for her to come on the show. I'd love her to come on the show. But she would go nuts at me if I misgendered a trans person. For disrespect. By, by the way, by the way, that same trans person, if they went to live in Gaza, would have a very short lifespan. So the same, oh. so the same groups that are out there. There's, there's a, and it's funny if again, if it wasn't so horrendous. There's a, there's a very great meme at the moment, and it's got a picture of of some LGBT supporters. Um, and it says at the top LGBT uh, for, for Palestine, and beneath it, it's got some chickens holding up uh, KFC, and it says chickens yes. for KFC. And the point it's making is, it's it's a crazy, crazy position to hold. That that narrative makes no sense because those same people, if they were ever to experience what the people in Palestine have to experience under Hamas, they'd be killed. They'd be killed for holding those beliefs. Uh, which, and I just find it bizarre that they can hold those two things together in their mind at the same time. Or woman. Or woman, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That no, it, it's um, and, and again, I don't think there's a doubt about that young woman's Fate? what happened to her. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And the hostages, the hostages are real and being held. And you can't hold people and have a ceasefire. You got to hand the people back. Which and and so Israel has said to the to the successive calls for a ceasefire. Israel has said no ceasefire until you release the hostages. Now that's an absolutely reasonable position to take. No ceasefire until you release the hostages. And the media of the world should be jumping on that and and amplifying that message because that's a reasonable position to take. That gets no traction whatsoever. And the messaging is all around this other stuff that we talked around about being freedom fighters and 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 the Palestinian cause. This isn't about the Palestinian cause. This is about the Hamas cause. So what's been Israel's response? to all of this? Well, the first thing that Israel's done is it's done the same thing that um, the United States did when, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. It's done the same thing the United States did when when uh, those uh, those uh, planes hit the Twin Towers in, in 2001, 9-11. Uh, um, it's responded uh, in kind, and it said that we're not going to tolerate this attack on our people. And so, so its form of doing that is to say we are going to go into... Gaza after 20 years, and we are going to dismantle entirely the apparatus of war that's been created by Hamas over that time. And in the process of doing that, and again, this is all in my my article, and there's lots of links just demonstrating how, the extensive lengths to which they've gone, they have gone out of their way to let Gazan citizens know that they're coming 
and that they need to leave. They meet, they've, they've come in from the north, so they're saying to Gazan citizens, you need to move to the south You need to, as quickly as possible because we're coming in and we're going to dismantle Hamas. Now, Hamas know this. They're aware that the uh, the uh, Israelis, uh, the IDF, have been com coming in from the north, and so what they've done is that they have made it almost impossible in some parts of Gaza for people to flee. And um, uh, so, and by the way, the process that the the IDF have used to actually let people know they've sent flyers, they've dropped flyers from planes, they've phoned cell phones, hundreds of thousands of cell phones, um, they've put that they've made radio broadcasts, they've used social media, they've gone to every single uh, process they possibly could to inform people that they were coming and to let them know that they, where they were going to be striking and they needed to get out of those areas. Now, the response to that is that we're getting these figures that are coming out from the BBC and from New York Times and some of these other partisan media organisations talking about the death toll that supposedly happened as a result of this. Now, let me first say, I have no doubt that there have been civilian casualties as a result of, of what Israel is doing. There couldn't not be. In the same way that when the British and the Allies bombed Dresden and Germany, civilians died. Um, and and other parts of of, of during World War Two, civilians died. That, but sadly, that's what what happens during war. But the IDF have absolutely gone out of their way to minimise that as much as possible. But it's also remembering that those numbers that we are getting, and I think at the moment they're talking about ten thousand, are not coming from an independent source. They're coming from, in most cases, they're coming from the Gaza Health, Gaza Health Ministry, which, as I said before, is a Hamas controlled organization so it's propaganda now that's not to say those numbers may well be true but we can't take them for granted as being true because there's been no independent verification and it may well be that those numbers are much much less any life lost is important so don't let me minimize that but by the same token let's not inflate those numbers based on anything other than the word of a terrorist organization that has an interest in propaganda and in misleading and manipulating the world my watching of the news, and am I correct in this? I don't want to feed you a softball, but sure. um, just my observation of it in conversation is that Israeli soldiers are risking their lives. Totally. Making corridors. Yep, totally. And those corridors, I'm glad you mentioned that, those corridors are designed to, to uh, get past the blockade that's been put in place by Hamas to stop people going south so that people have got safe passage and that they can move south and that uh, before uh, but before Israel moves in, or, be, or before they 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 do what they need to do to destroy the Hamas infrastructure, so so the IDF, as you say, has gone above and beyond in terms of the the steps and the actions that it's taken to protect the the, the Palestinian people in Gaza. Can the Israelis can they destroy Hamas, or is that yes, an they impossible? Well. They can destroy Hamas physically. In other words, they can take out the, the infrastructure, and they will. They can take out the infrastructure that is currently there. What they can't do, and this is the debate at the moment, what they can't do is they can't destroy the spirit behind that. So, so the argument is that if you destroy every single member of Hamas, there'll just be a new generation of kids that will pop up with the same hatred and the same antagonisms and the whole thing will take off again. And there's possibly some truth in that. So, so will they destroy the current physical infrastructure and the current Hamas leadership? Yeah, I have no doubt of that whatsoever. They'll find them wherever they need to and, and they'll eliminate them. Will they destroy what drives Hamas, whether it's Hamas or another group that pops up in its place? Jury's out on that. And the only way you fix that is you make people, you, 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 you improve the lot of people and, and you improve their lives and you, you put them in a situation where they can get on with their lives and live like, like everybody else does. And the problem with that is that religion is involved with this and it infects this and this entire 
It's uh, an interesting thing about um, I have an argument with a close friend of mine who thinks you can't beat an idea with war. But my counterpoint to him is that we destroyed the Nazis in Germany. But there are still Nazis. Yes, but never in a position of power again. No, and, and that's probably the point. And we also destroyed the fascist thinking in Japan. Yep. And um, it wasn't pretty. But it look at what happened. Here's, here's a good point. That's a good point you're raising. Look at what happened after uh, after World War II with the Marshall Plan and with what happened in, in uh, Japan is that after World War I, uh, the Treaty of Versailles, all the nations uh, that, that had been affected by that war basically said to Germany, you have to pay for the war. And they put some reparations on them, which which were almost impossible. They crippled their economy. And in the seeds of those reparations, we created the ground for the Second World War, which the, the fertile land in which Hitler was able to, to cause disconsent and, 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 and you know, Nazism was able to take off. Did exactly the opposite at the end of World War II. The Marshall Plan was designed to effectively assist uh, those economies to get them back on their feet, and the Americans in particular, but also parts of Europe, did everything that they could to to uh, rebuild the German economy. The Americans did the same thing with the with the Japanese economy. Totally different outcome after that. You had a, so so the message in that and the lesson in that is you don't just do what they're doing at the moment. You don't just dismantle the infrastructure, but you get involved in whatever way you can to improve the lot of the people that have been affected in the aftermath. Absolutely, I'm hoping I've got a I got an observation that will fire up listeners. I've become a great admirer of Victor Davis Hanson, who's a commentator and historian. And he wrote a very good book called The Second World Wars, making the point that it wasn't one war, it was many. And he would just, he, I had your view of the Treaty of Versailles, but he disagrees with that strongly. Okay. And his point is, is that World War One ended with an armistice, not surrender. And his point is the mistake was not was in that they weren't going to repeat in World War Two. No, no Allied soldier in World War One entered Germany. And so Hitler was able to rise up that they were stabbed in the back and let down because they had never lost, but that the Jewish people had bankers and all that, and, and that became the story. And Victor Davis Hansen's view is that when World War II rolled around, having the third major European war prompted by Germany, they weren't going to muck around and they were going to have unconditional surrender. And he says, yes, it was important to rebuild, but the unconditional surrender was important too. And I think that's an interesting point. It, it is. And you can probably see that, that you could argue that that's what's playing out at the moment in terms it's of. It's going to be unconditional surrender. And yeah. that's that's the nonsense to me of a proportionate response. There's no such thing. As you either win or you lose. Yeah. And, and, so, and by the way, we don't call for proportional responses in any other conflict. It, it, no. It's only when it comes to Israel and, and, and the Palestinians. Yeah. That's, that's so, 
Hamas is committing an War atrocity crimes. with yep. the hostages and with the attack. You pin it back to Hamas. It's not like they're hiding or disguising what their plan is. You distinguish it from the Palestinian people. You distinguish it from Islam. Totally. And you say we're dealing with a terrorist organization, which we're going to get rid of. And hopefully, getting rid of it is a big plus, yep. but hopefully um, send a message and hopefully extend an olive branch upon surrender. Totally. And and that's essentially what Netanyahu and the and the coalition government are currently saying. By the way, another point I should have made before, which is really important because we talk about Islam, and this is seen by some people as being Islam versus Judaism. A lot of people don't understand that when uh, Israel was formed, um, the, the day before it was basically the, the nation was declared in May 1948, uh, the, the Israelis put an olive branch out to, to the Arabs that already lived in that land and said, stay with us, we'll build a nation. And Egypt and Jordan at the time said, no, 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 go to the borders because we're going to destroy Israel and then you'll be able to, able to go back um, into the land afterward. And of course, Israel won that war. About 20% of the Arabs that lived in Israel actually stayed. And those people and their descendants are now citizens of Israel with the same yes. rights as every other Israeli. So this talk of apartheid is total nonsense. Uh, the people that stayed and their descendants who now live there, 20% of the population who are Islamic and uh, uh, various other religions, Christian, um, practice those religions in absolute freedom, have exactly the same rights as any other Israeli. So this idea that there is an apartheid system operating and that somehow this is a war of religions is simply not borne out by the fact of what actually happens. And, and am, I am I correct in understanding that Israel's suffering a fate that a lot of countries in the West are, that their judiciary are getting highly activist against their government and politicians. Yeah. And that the chief judge or one of the judges is Arab. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, that that's the pinnacle, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is actually and, some and, democracy working, I would have argued. I know, an Arab judge uh, ruling on Netanyahu, whether what he's doing is lawful or not. I mean, it... It's, Arabs at every level of, of Israeli society function in, in the way. There's a, there's a guy, if anybody gets a chance, and he's, I know he's on, on LinkedIn, a guy called Yosef Haddad, H-A-D-D-A-D, -A -D -A -D, um, thoroughly worth looking up. He's an Arab Israeli, an ardent supporter of Israel, and produces copious amounts of YouTube uh, uh, resource material as well as on LinkedIn, just talking about the reality of the situation versus the, the propaganda and the narrative that's been put out by people who don't understand the situation. What is the history of the Palestinian people? Interesting. So the Palestinian. So the first thing to understand, because one of the again, one of the, the the myths is this idea that the the that the Jewish people came in and and overran what was previously a Palestinian state. That's simply not true, Rodney. Let me walk you through really quickly. Uh, from uh, uh, about six hundred and eight BC, um, depending on when you count it, a guy called Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Babylonian overthrew what had previously been a Jewish kingdom for about uh, about 1,200 years um, and and uh, essentially occupied that land. He was defeated by the, well, not him, but his his successors were defeated by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians were defeated by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great's kingdom split into the Seleucids and the, um, the Ptolemies 
and then there was briefly a, a, a Hebrew empire uh, of, of the um, Hesmonians. Then the Romans took it over. Then the Byzantians took it over. And then in 638 AD, uh, 1200 and whatever years ago, um, the the, uh, the Muslims took it over and it became an Islamic caliphate. And then for the next 1200, 1300-odd years, a series of Islamic caliphates controlled that land none of which, and this is the really important part, none of which were actually based in that land. So they were in Egypt, they were in Persia, they were in all sorts of different parts of the Middle East, but not there itself. And then in uh, at the end of the First World War, when the British defeated the Ottomans, who were the last of those caliphates, it became a British territory under a mandate from the United Nations, and the British held it till 1948, in which case it became a Jewish nation again. Now, the reason I just ran through all that with you is nowhere in there. Oh, by the way, there was also for about 100 years in the 12th century, there was also a, a uh, kingdom created by the Crusaders called the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Nowhere in there was there a Palestinian nation. There never has been. There has never been a Palestinian nation in that land um, at any time. It's always been controlled by somebody else. So the idea that the uh, the Israelis came in and took over what had previously been a Palestinian nation is simply not true in either fact or law. There is a Palestinian nation. It was created by the British in 1946, and it's called Jordan. And it's got it's populated by almost exactly the same people as the people in Palestine. Oh, really? Nation, yeah. So it's, 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 essentially, it's the same people. There's a, sort of an homogenous uh, thing that's been going on over the last several hundred years. So the Jordanian nation is, a, is essentially the Palestinian state. Um, and so there is an argument that says that when uh, it, uh, that when the West Bank was created, the Jordanians should have actually just absorbed that into to Jordan. But it's but it made for them it was much more expedient for them to leave that where it was and treat them as refugees because they could then embarrass Israel, which is what they did. Now the second part of your question was who are the people who are in Palestine now versus where, where that name came from? The name Palestine. And there are some arguments to this, but the general belief is that the name Palestine is based on the word Philistine, and the Philistines actually occupied the area which is now Gaza, uh, about 1200 BC. Long since gone, they weren't they weren't uh, they weren't Arabs. We know that because there's there's no P in the um, in the Arab alphabet. It's uh, uh, they were a sea trading people, probably from Europe uh, or or somewhere further north. But they've they've disappeared. They've played, the Assyrians conquered them uh, thousands of years ago. But the the Romans, in an attempt to try and um, to offend the Jews who were who were obviously living in that land at the time, uh, called the area Syria Palestina. So that's where that came from. So the Syrian Palestinians, uh, up until about six thirty eight, were were Jews. That's where the word comes from. And so mm -hmm. so the people we call the Palestinians today are not those people. They're completely different people. We've applied that term to them. Now that doesn't that doesn't invalidate the current Palestinians. It doesn't mean that they're not a people. Uh, in the same way that Australians, New Zealanders and Canadians are peoples, even though they've only been around for a few hundred years, they are legitimate people groups. The Palestinians are a people group, but they're not the same people that populated that land thousands of years ago, and they've never had an independent state. So if I'm Palestinian, yep, I'm not an Arab? Yes, you are an Arab, yep. Okay. I could be living in Israel and be Palestinian? And there are there are people. I mean, if you look at the Arab, it depends on how you use that term. Because there are some that say that's a, that's an appellation which is applied to a group. But if you saw that as an as a distinct ethnic group, you could argue that those people are with that, that make up some of that twenty percent of the population of Israel. I think most people would probably argue that Palestinian is a term now to describe those people politically rather than ethnically.
We're on Real Talk with uh, Rodney Hyde on Really Check Radio. We're doing a deep, uh, a deep exploration of the history and the goings-on that's led to this conflict uh, in the Gaza and Hamas and with Israel and the terrible, terrible trauma and death and injuries that's occurring. What is it all about? How can we best understand this? And we're talking about it with Ashley Church. Stay tuned. We've got more coming. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. We're talking with Ashley Church about Hamas, uh, the current war, uh, Israel, the history, what's going on. Why, why do... Why are the people in the West so divided about this? What's going on? Um, it'll stir some controversy, no doubt. So send us a text at 2057. Email us at inbox at radio. Now, back to Ashley. So there are Arabs living in Israel and some Palestinians living in Israel. That's correct. That is correct. So there are there are there are Arabs, certainly Arabs living in Israel, some of whom were uh, the original dwellers in what was known as Palestine prior to Israel being established in 1948. In fact, about 20% of the population of Israel is Arab, Palestinian Arab. And they have the full rights of citizenship. They are exactly the same as anybody else. In fact, when uh, the nation was established, uh, or, or, or beforehand, the authority that was setting up the Israeli state actually sent a message out to all Palestinians, everybody who was living in in uh, that that, uh, that land at the time, and said, "We're we're going to set this new nation up. Stay with us. Help us to to create this new country." Um, and the countervailing message, which came from uh, Jordan and Egypt, was, "No, leave because we're going to wipe the Jews off the face of the map, and you'll be able to go back to." You know, back into to Palestine wow. and carry on as if nothing's happened. So twenty percent of them stayed, eighty percent of them left. The the eighty percent that left became the what we now refer to as refugees in Gaza and the West Bank. The twenty percent who remained, they and their descendants are Israeli um, uh, citizens with exactly the same rights as any other Israeli. They're judges, they're sports stars, they're TV hosts. Uh, they operate at every level of society with exactly the same rights. So. Basically, the population of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip yep. were refugees from Israel's formation who chose to leave. Yeah, and so there's there's an interesting question about what should have happened with those people. So they 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 did that because they were they were instructed to by and large by Jordan and Egypt. Um, and there's a there's a pretty strong argument as I mentioned a little bit earlier. There's a pretty strong argument that says that given that the British had already created Jordan, which was essentially a Palestinian state, that uh, that Jordan should have assimilated those people into its own nation. Um, and that's a reasonable thing to assume. By the way, there were about seven hundred thousand Jews in other Middle Eastern nations in the 19, in late 1940s who uh, Israel actually assimilated into Israel within a very short space of time. So those people were also refugees. They were refugees from Arab nations and they were assimilated into Israel very quickly. So Israel took its refugees. Uh, Egypt and Jordan didn't do likewise. So in 47, 48, yep. the West Bank and Gaza Strip yep. are filled with refugees Refuge. from Israel. Yep. Now, 
what were they? They were what were they? What was their status, the West Bank and Gaza Strip? Because weren't they under the control of, in the case of the Gaza Strip, that was under the control of Egypt? Yeah, so um, yes, it was. Uh, so so Egypt completely controlled the Gaza Strip up until 1967, and yeah. I think. I'm and when you say completely controlled it, was that part of Egypt, or was it no. just something? No, it wasn't. Neither Egypt nor Jordan actually assimilated those territories into their own countries, and there were political reasons for that. Um, they they did that because it because in terms of embarrassing Israel and putting pressure on Israel, it made more sense to keep them as distinct refugee communities in those areas. Um, so 67, I'd have to check my facts on, on Gaza, but I'm absolutely certain on, with regard to the West Bank. So prior to 1967, uh, Jerusalem, uh, East Jerusalem was under the control of, uh, of Jordan and it was regarded as part of that area. In the 1967 war, uh, the Israeli forces actually recaptured East Jerusalem and have subsequently made, uh, which is where the old city is, which has got the Temple Mount. Um, and that's subsequently become the capital um of israel and so um uh so yeah as i say prior to that it was it was part of that territory that was that was part of uh which was effectively controlled by jordan up until that time now that war there's no doubt about that that was an attack on israel totally and it was an attack by jordan yep and and egypt and syria and and a couple of other minor players and it was a surprise attack Oh, totally! It was a surprise attack. It was actually uh, uh, during a. Uh, it started during a, an, an Israeli holy day, um, which was deliberate, um, and and it was designed uh, once again to to eliminate uh, the, the Jews from from that land. Um, and pretty much exactly the opposite happened. I mean, there's a really fascinating story about the things that uh, the Israelis actually did. One of the things that they did that's regarded as one of the keys to to the defeat of the, the powers that attacked them was that the Israeli Air Force pretty much wiped out the Egyptian Air Force on the tarmac um, uh, in Egypt before it was even uh, able to, 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 to leave the ground. Um, uh, so so that was a pivotal war for Israel, um, and it was probably the difference between uh, Israel, the nation that it had been prior to 1967, and the nation that became what we've got today. Um, and it was also the catalyst for took a few more years, but it was the catalyst for a peace treaty between, um, subsequently a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, which has stood the test of time. And and some years after that, in the 1990s, a peace treaty between Israel and Jordan. So there hasn't actually been any conflict between Israel and Jordan and Israel and Egypt um, for a very long period of time as a result of those two peace treaties. But the Gaza Strip and the West Bank remained with the Palestinians, but this time under Israeli control. Correct. And so it's interesting because there's a lot of talk about, the, 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 a lot of the protesters use the phrase occupation to describe uh, Israel's relationship with Gaza um, and, and, and indeed the West Bank. Um, in the case of Gaza, as I think I said earlier in this interview, um, in 2005, Israel actually pulled out of Gaza in its entirety. Mm -hmm. it, it forcibly removed um, Israeli settlers and it basically gave... Um, uh, the people of of Gaza carte blanche to to set up their own government and and operate completely independently. It offered them assistance in doing that, but it, but it, 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 for all intents and purposes, it treated them with total autonomy. And it's during that twenty odd year period uh, that's acted as an incubator for what we have today, which is Hamas effectively 
uh, creating a, a prison state um, and turning that into a military encampment. Um, so there hasn't been any occupation. It, it, what happens now um, is it, going to be interesting because having dismantled the apparatus of of, um, of Hamas, which, which Israel's in the process of currently doing, the question then becomes what happens to that land afterward? And there's been some really interesting different um, and diverse opinions on that. So the Americans want it to be controlled, or Biden, Biden's indicated he wants it to be controlled by the Palestinian Authority in Fatah. Um, which currently uh, controls the West Bank. Um, I don't think that'll happen because ultimately it'll be Israel's decision. Um, Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of, of Israel, has given a couple of different views, which are kind of at odds with each other. And when it first, when they first went in there, they indicated that they would then be occupying that area for a long time. He's resolved a little bit from that view more recently, so he's now using less distinct language and he's now indicating that they want to have some form of control but they won't occupy it and you know raises a question to what that will look like i think what will happen and this is certainly the outcome that would be uh the best for for the palestinians in gaza i think what will happen is that they will try and that they will take some form of control over setting up a new administration that they will try to um, to embed an administration which is which is less focused on the military and more on the welfare and, and, and well-being of, of Palestinians. Um, but the important part of that, I think, is that they'll take a note out of what happened after World War II with the Marshall Plan and that the Israelis will try and, as much as they possibly can to, uh, to um, create economic relationships with that new administration so that they can actually build the economy of a mass. Didn't they do that in 05, though? Not really, no. They okay. they basically got out completely. They did make some offers subsequent to that. For example, I think as I mentioned, they they talked about setting it up as a kind of a Singapore, um, but that was totally at the behest of Hamas, and Hamas had no interest in that. So the difference this time will be that rather than setting up a completely autonomous government, which is what happened in 2005, and offering them assistance, I think what they'll do what what the Allies did with Germany and Japan after World War II, and they will, they will, if I can put it this way, they will force them to take assistance. They will, they will essentially take control of making sure that all of the mechanisms of a, of a modern, um, democratic and economically successful state are in place before they 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 leave that area. And you could argue, you know, that's anti-democratic, and you know that that it, it goes against principles of self-determination. But if you look at the evidence of what happened in Germany and Japan, it worked. So, so my my guess is that's what's probably likely to happen. And the West Bank, yep, doesn't feature so much in this current debate. No, but isn't it equivalent? Well, yes and no. The West Bank is controlled by by Fatah, um, which is a completely separate organisation. It's not Hamas. To be fair, there's been some statements come out of Fatah over the last uh, couple of weeks, which indicate that they are supportive of Hamas and 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 you know have made some some excuses for th some of the things that Hamas has done. But if you look at the evidence of their management of the West Bank over the last twenty or thirty years, um, they've, they've certainly done a better job of it than than uh, than, than Hamas has done in Gaza. Um, it, it, I think the difference is that Hamas has a very distinct charter. The Hamas charter is very, very clear that they're, they very see clear. their role as being about the elimination of Israel. Um, uh, as far as I'm aware, Fatah doesn't have an equivalent of that. And that's probably the difference between the two in terms of the way that they operate. We're not attributing to Hamas um, ill motive. We have it in their exact own words. Totally. Totally. And we own. have it 
at every opportunity that they get to speak. I would anybody listening to this who's got an objective perspective on things, I would encourage to Google search Hamas Charter and read it from, mm. from beginning to end because that will stun people. This isn't this isn't my opinion or your opinion. No. Um, you know, this isn't fairy tale stuff. This is a very clear document that talks about killing Jews, that talks about the total elimination of uh the Jewish people and, and of Israel. And then Rodney goes on to talk about the role of Hamas around the rest of the world. And that the that the uh, Hamas won't see itself as having been successful until it replaces right throughout the world, not just in Israel, but right throughout the world, uh, a democracy and capitalism with Sharia law and an Islamic state. Um, and and it's it's very blunt. It's very blunt. If you read it, you'll be you'll be horrified by by the the aspirations of this group. Very similar to the Taliban. Very similar to the Taliban. Very similar. Probably more similar to ISIS. Except ISIS was um, had different imperatives around the brand of Islam that it was promoting, but in terms of its operation, very very similar forms of operation. So you know these are extremist groups uh, that see themselves as as the um, you know the soldiers of 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 sort of ancient um, but belief systems of you know going back a thousand years and returning to to the way that Islam operated in, in the early days of the Caliphate. Um, and and bringing those principles back. So so if you look at the last four hundred years of of Islam prior to to the end of World War One, um, the Middle East was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire was, if I can use this term, much more enlightened. It was a much more modern, if I can use that word, um, uh, power, and it operated that part of the world in a, in a way which was more in line with what we would regard as being modernistic principles. But prior to that, you had a series of caliphates that were actually quite uh, draconian in the way in which they treated their people and, and, and the approach that they took to, to control of that part of the world. And that's what these people want to return to. Wouldn't an easy solution be for Egypt to take over the Gaza Strip and open its border? and Jordan to take over the West Bank and open its border, recognise Palestinian people as being special, but being part of their respective states. Yes, but. <laughs> so, yes, it would, but. Um, and you could, extend the, you could extend that argument to say that if you spread those uh, people throughout the, the Middle East into a variety of other nations in the Middle East, that it wouldn't be much of an imposition on those various nations. The reasons that they won't do it um, are because all of those nations recognize the the enemy within that lurks within uh, the Palestinian people. So it's not the Palestinians as a whole. It's that element, and it might only be 5% of their populations, but that 5% is extremely militant. And so that's why the Saudi Arabias, the Egypts, the Jordans, um, you know, the Bahrains, the, the, the Emirati states, none of those are going to take those people in because they recognize uh, the threat that that would cause to their own societies. And so... Um, while that might make sense to you and I, it, it's never going to happen. So if I get that right, there are Palestinians all through Europe, yep. Palestinians in America, mm -hmm. recent, yep. Palestinians in Australia and New Zealand and Canada, yep. and the other ones that we see protesting so vehemently yep. and calling for the global intifada gas the Jews, so we've taken them. <laughs> the West have taken them. Yeah. But the Arab the Arab countries the Arabs have are smarter not taken than we are. The Arabs are smarter than we are, Rodney, and they recognize that the, the, the problem that, that would cause to their society. So they're not going to do that. 
It's astonishing, is it not? It is astonishing. It is absolutely astonishing, and it's and it's a it's an act of of willful ignorance on the part of the West that thinks that it's being benign and somehow supportive when actually what it's doing is it's simply importing terror from the Middle East. Not all, and, and again, I stress, not all. Obviously, not all of them. Only a small proportion of them. But that small proportion has the ability to do enormous damage. Hmm. Um. Obviously, there are Arabs and Palestinians living in Israel, and there are mosques, and they have full rights, and they can be politicians and judges and yep. succeed. Oh, and, 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 sorry, and they and they are they are in parliament. They, there are there are Arab political parties in, in Israel. Yeah, and I think the Supreme Court judge is an Arab. Yeah, some but yeah, more than one. Pulling Netanyahu yeah, up. They, they, you know, and, I, need, I really need to suggest they're at every level of society in Israel, and they support Israel. Not yet. Well, they support like any democracy. There's a variety of views. There are there are militant Palestinians in Israel who who would you know get rid of Israel tomorrow if they could. Just as in New Zealand, we have we have sections of our society who would do away with our society if if they had the opportunity to do so, and they operate within a democracy. So you know, don't let me for a moment give the impression that it's all sweetness and light and everybody agrees. They don't. It's a democracy. People have got a different viewpoint. Um, but but they operate within the confines of a democratic state, and as long as they abide within the law, they're entitled to free speech and to have those views just as anybody else's. And do the Arabs serve in the army? Uh, they don't have to. So so the Israelis must serve in the army. That's a it's a requirement. Sorry, the Jews must serve in the army. It's a requirement. Um, Arabs, it's voluntary. Uh, a large number do though. I think I mentioned earlier in this interview a guy called Yosef Haddad. Um, and Yosef's an Arab Israeli, and he did choose to serve in the army. He actually commanded a unit in which he was the only Arab, and everybody else was Jewish. And he's got some very interesting stories to tell. But uh, uh, yeah, they, they they certainly can do, and many of them do, and in the police force and in other and other parts of the services. But there aren't Jews in the Gaza Strip. No, no, none. Unless they're hiding. <laughs> So, and I wouldn't imagine they would be because they wouldn't be very popular there. So no, no, and and that won't change, Rodney. The um the whatever Netanyahu and and the coalition, the, the war cabinet decide to do, I don't think it will change that. What it will do is it will it will try and introduce modern principles and modern government and modern business practices to that part of the world to try and improve a lot of the Palestinian people that live there. Mm. So. When we look at Chloe Swarbrick, let's just pick on her. Sure. As emblemic, if I got that word, I didn't quite get it, pull it off, but she's an emblem of what we're dealing with. Educated lady, nice, cares, kind. Shouts from the river to the sea and sees Israel as an oppressor, oppressor, of the Palestinian people. Yep. And calls for an immediate ceasefire to stop the killing because she can't stand people being hurt. And then what would she want? That's a really interesting question. Let me let me expand the brief of that question to say, okay. um, is there something that Israel could do 
that would meet the needs of the Chloe Swarbrooks and the protesters, yes. not just in New Zealand, but throughout the Western world? Is there something that Israel could do that would meet their needs? Um, in my view, the answer is no. There is nothing that Israel could do that would assuage these people. And the reason, and, 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 I, and I say that for two reasons. Firstly, I say it because if you look at the, the demands that these people are making, uh, they're either factually incorrect, that's true of 70 to 80% of them, or they're things that Israel's already done or is already doing. So, for example, stop the occupation, which is one of the big chants you hear. Israel's not occupied uh, either the West Bank or Gaza for a very long period of time. Those have, those have run as semi-autonomous states, or in fact, there's autonomous states for a long time. Um, and yet that chant, you know, if you go to any pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian chant, you'll hear stop the occupation, stop the occupation. So can't stop doing something you're not currently doing. Um, uh, you know, the, you know, stop the apartheid's another one. So again, there is no apartheid taking place in either in either Gaza or or the West Bank. Um, the the Palestinian Israelis that live in Israel live with the same rights and and privileges every other Israeli. The ones that live in in uh, Gaza or the West Bank are not part of Israel. They're completely they're, they're separate states. They operate under their own laws. So there has been no apartheid. So two of those key claims: stop the occupation and stop the apartheid. Um, neither of them are actually true. Um, so, so for that reason, I think that it, it wouldn't matter what you did, but the, it's not going to assuage those people. But the second reason I say that is because I actually don't think that the protests are really about garnering some concessions from Israel that are somehow going to make things better. You know, another one is 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 the the demand for for um, uh, setting up a Palestinian state. And again, if if, if you look at that in its truest form, its its most correct form, there have been opportunity after opportunity after opportunity over the last four or five decades to do that. And on every occasion, both Hamas and um, and the Palestinian Authority have have turned that down and moved away. Now, they've ended up with a form of state anyway, but it's not the sanctioned state that you would think that they would want because they've refused it. So, you know, th th there's nothing more that Israel can do in that space until those parties are prepared to come to the table and say, yep, let's talk. Um, so it, 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 in respect of the question... I don't think there is anything that could be done because I don't think that's really what the protesters are asking for. I think what the protesters are really saying, and you encapsulated it with that phrase, the river to the sea, is we need to get rid of Israel. It's, it shouldn't be there. And that land needs to go back to the warm, kind Palestinian people that were there prior to 1947. It's this mythology that's been built up um, and nothing short of completely either eliminating or clearing out the Jews that live there will will make that demand and that's not going to happen and and does this it strikes me that this is the philosophy the identity politics that we suffer from now where you identify an oppressor and you identify the victims and the oppressor is invariably supported by america yep. invariably is a western capitalized people you know white males um heterosexual males and the oppressed are these poor impoverished people who are poor and impoverished usually because they have shocking governance and we're seeing the same thing play out in new zealand where white people were terrible and marry a great yeah and this is this is how they present their politics they've simply translated that politics across to Israel and the Palestinians, but taking it one step further, 
because they're saying we want decolonization, which is even more absurd. And it gives you the chills because it actually means there's nothing that non-Maori can do in New Zealand to satisfy ultimately the core. It's not enough to have co-governance. That's like the two-state solution. It's only a halfway house. The only place that it can e end, if you translate, if you translate the call to New Zealand, is it's from the ocean to Mount Cook. Yeah. So, so yes, Mary, no. Mary will be free. Am I? Am I making too long a bow? No, you're not. But but let me put another layer on it. So what you're talking about, what you're referring to, and it underpins green and alt left ideology right around the Western world is this thing called critical race theory. So critical race theory is the view that uh, all of the problems of the world are, are the result of uh, A, colonialism, and B, white people um, in, in a very broad sense. And so, it, and it's a very, it, it's it's a very enticing viewpoint for those who buy into that, those particular ideologies, because it's a very easy one to superficially prove. If you look around the world, you say, you know, the, the British, for example, created its empire that created their empire by colonizing various different nations and so to the effect that people in those nations are economically um wanting or their health is not as good it's as a result of colonization and therefore it's the fault of white people it's a very enticing viewpoint but particularly for people mm. who are disaffected and and who feel that, that somehow they haven't done as well in life as they feel that they should have and 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 in new zealand that's that's certainly valid here too um, there are some differences, and one difference is that while your analogy with with um, multi aspirations here in New Zealand is valid, um, the levels of extreme are far far lower. So, for example, with the exception of maybe a very very few extremists in New Zealand, there's nobody on either side of the political debate in New Zealand suggesting that we, you know that you should go out and kill all of the whites. Um, and the debate here is more around the fringes of who should have control and you know how the, how the economic cake should be should be split. Um, and you know we can sit comfortably on either side of that. D and I'm not. And, and in saying that, don't let me detract from the idiocy and the insanity and the lunacy of critical race theory. It is the most. It is one of the most lunatic um, uh, philosophies uh, to have emerged over the last fifty or sixty years. And and it will disappear because it can't. It can't be sustained. It's these. these well, it can't. It can't be subject to debate. No. No, so and you're and, and in fact you're already seeing it disappearing in the Western world and yes. here in New Zealand just as a result of the recent coalition agreement you're already seeing a major stamp um, on on eradicating its influence on New Zealand not completely but but certainly as part of of government policy. So with that as a background, if you then take that to what's happening in in the Middle East and Israel and and Gaza. That, there's a whole new level of insanity on top of that because you've got all of that. You've got critical race theory. You're quite right. You've got the whole concept of, of um, uh, you know, sort of white supremacy and 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 all of the other things that are that are mooted by that. In addition to which, and this is the key difference, you've got a massive layer of anti-Semitism, and it's that massive layer of anti-Semitism that takes it from being a philosophical argument or an argument that is constrained by maybe marches around the major cities to a violent aspiration where. Um, this isn't just about demanding things from government. It's saying, let's kill these people. Let's eliminate them. Let's get rid of them. And whether the Chloe Swarbrooks uh, or or others who chant from the river to the sea understand what that mantra means, that is what they are saying. Every time they make that chant, they're saying, let's kill Jews. Let's eliminate the Jews. Let's get rid of them. 
And and that chant, not in those words, but that aspiration has been the same for the last 2,000 years. There has been an ongoing uh, tendency on the part of powers around the world, currently in the form of the pro-Palestinian movement, but previously in other political movements to get rid of Jews, to kill Jews, to eradicate Jews from the planet. That's the difference. We have to remind ourselves too that the architects and implementers of the Holocaust were lovely people. Well, (laughs) sure. Um, You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. It's like they, they thought they were doing their best that could become a bad clip, couldn't it? Um, yeah. They thought they were doing their best. They cared for their kids, and they exterminated Jews on an industrial scale. Because what I struggle with is I don't agree with Chloe Swarbrick, her politics, but I'd readily accept previously that she's a lady of good faith and good intention and means well. But when she starts yelling from the river to the sea, I think, well, she could be caught up in the moment, but she's an experienced politician, so I don't accept that. She could be incredibly stupid. I don't accept that. She actually knows what she's saying. But if you labelled her, I mean, it's like a woolly a Willie Jackson or indeed a Green MP when they advocate for co-governance. They're advocating for racism and apartheid. But they'd never accept that. But she is not just an anti-Semite. She's calling for the destruction of Jews. And, And therein your parallel with Hitler's Germany is valid because because whereas in the case of the Nazis, they were uh, their their mantra, the way in which they got the support of their people was by appealing to their state of feeling disaffected and their state of feeling that they'd been punished by the Western world, and 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 that the responsibility and the cause of that was primarily the Jews, and therefore they should eradicate them or kill them. And Chloe Swarbrick, different generation, same modus operandi. This time it's critical race theory, but. Once again, it's about finding somebody to blame, finding a group to blame. If only the Jews could be removed from Israel, the lot of the Palestinians would be would be lifted and all the world would be better and everybody would be happy. It's, it's this nonsensical, superficial idea that if you can just remove somebody else, the, the culprits, the people that have made me a victim, that my life will be better. It's a repeat of the same thing, same MO, different group, different group of people doing it. Now, one thing I've never understood what it is, is they toss around this phrase, Zionism. What is that? Zionism. That's really interesting you should ask me that question. So when I I was uh, with a couple of other people set up the Israel Institute back in 2016. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I did not know you were involved in that. Oh, yeah, no, I was one of the founders. Um, uh, along with David Kuman, who was who was on the Jewish Council at that stage, and with uh, there was the other guy who was involved in that was Perry Trotter, along with his wife Cherie. And Perry, and that's what Juliet Moses is involved with. No, no, she's with the Jewish Council. No, oh, okay, two separate things. Okay, um, although you know, we're all working toward the same purpose. Um, and so, so what's it? The reason I mentioned Perry is because Perry had already been involved in 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 advocacy for Israel and 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 the Jews for quite some period of time, and he was working on a series which he promoted to me at the time called 
I am a Zionist. It was a series of videos. You can still find them on YouTube. And uh, each each of the videos in the series was somebody, and some of them were Jewish and some of them weren't, but people saying, I am a Zionist and here's why. And I remember being quite confronted by that at the time and thinking, oh, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that term, Zionist. And so Perry, and I told Perry this, and so Perry encouraged me at the time to do some research and find out what Zionism, Zionism actually was and to understand more about the meaning of that term. And and because I bought into, and I'll come back in a minute to to some of the things that happened, I bought into this idea that it was a real scary thing and that, you know, it was it, 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 about world control. Um, Zionism, and I've done my research since, so Zionism was a movement that was formed in 1897 by a guy called Theodor Herzl, who was an Austro-Hungarian Jew. And it's, it's simply an aspiration for a, a Jewish homeland. So the name comes from Zion's one of the mountains in Jerusalem, and and it's an identifier, and it's a, it's essentially an aspiration for Jews worldwide at the time to establish a homeland. Now, when he started that movement in 1897, there was virtually no prospect of that because the land at that stage was under the control of the Ottoman Empire, and they certainly weren't in any mood to be giving it over to the Jews. But 20 years later, into World War One, and the situation changed entirely. The Ottoman Empire was defeated. By the Allies, uh, the British were given control of of that land. In fact, most of the Middle East under a mandate from what was the League of Nations, what became the United Nations, and of course we know what happened in 1948. The United Nations um, voted to set up uh, the State of Israel, and so that first tranche of Zionism was achieved. That aspiration to set up a nation was achieved in 1967. They got uh, they reclaimed uh, Jerusalem, and and you could argue that it was fulfilled. And so since then, it's been all about development. Now, against that, and that's all Zionism is. It's important to be really clear: Zionism is, is an aspiration for a Jewish homeland and the development of that Jewish homeland. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. Against that, it could be. Could I be a Zionist and be advocating for a two-state solution? Yes, sure. It would depend on how that two-state solution was configured, yes. because at the heart of Zionism is Jerusalem is a is the capital of, of an Israeli state. But you Got can it. certainly have a two-state solution. Um, since over the last hundred years, Zionism's got a real bagging. And so that term's become synonymous with a whole lot of other stuff, which is completely nonsense. It has nothing to do with the original concept of Zionism. And that came particularly from the publication of a book in 1903, uh, a Russian book originally and translated into English called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And it was it was a fabrication. It purported to be a book written by Jews, which was, a, I think it was a tw 10 or 12 point series of steps for taking over the world. Um, wasn't written by Jews, wasn't a Jewish blueprint, uh, had nothing to do with the Jewish people. It was it was a forgery and it was designed to cast the, the Jewish people in, in Russia at that stage in, in, in a bad light. Um, that book has been grabbed onto over the last hundred years by various different groups, you know, the, the, the Ku Klux Klan in the States, by, by various different white supremacist groups in America, by the Palestinians, or particularly by Hamas and other organizations, as a way of... of, of um, uh, defining or supporting the actions that they're taking against the Jewish people. So that's that fictitious um, uh, forgery has been held up consistently as some sort of example of the Jews having a world agenda that, that, to, to take over the world. Now, people who believe that believe it with an absolute ferocity that you'll never change. It's 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 like some of the views that were circulating around you know COVID and some of the other things that were taking place over the last four or five years. It's that kind of fanatical belief who will never be convinced otherwise. Um, but Zionism is simply a movement that has an aspiration for a Jewish homeland. And now that there is a Jewish homeland, an aspiration for that homeland to continue to be developed. Nothing more, nothing less. All of this other stuff um, is is simply made up and it's fictitious. Of course, 
fitting that narrative is the Jewish people appear oftentimes amazingly successful in terms of finance, in terms of Hollywood, in terms of uh, Nobel Prizes, science. Amazing. And they, of course, they certainly punch above their weight. You could, there, there's two reasons for that. What, what, the first one is that, I mean, they've had such a hard time, Rodney, over the last couple of thousand years, and they've been treated so badly by by various different powers. They've been um, uh, basically told to leave uh, various countries in Europe um, at various different times. So entire populations have been, been living in places like Spain, England, Portugal, Germany, France at various different times have basically been told you've got a couple of weeks, pick up your gear and get out. That's happened consistently over the last uh, sort of 1,200 years in particular. So you can understand why they would be a resilient people who are who are constantly, um, you know, uh, ha- having to reemerge and and, and and change. And and so they've become very good at at being successful and, and, and setting themselves up in societies in a way that they could do that again if they had to. But there's another layer to this for me. And and not everybody will agree with this, but I'd also argue that that's that's sanctioned by God. Um, and you know, there will be people listening to this who go, "Oh no, here we go <laughs> into the into the God stuff." Um, but I absolutely believe that. Are they in Scripture in the Old Testament? It talks about the fact that it, it talks about the fact that they'll be scattered. It actually describes what's known as the the diaspora, which is the scattering of the Jewish people for a long period of time. So that's all in Scripture. It's all predicted, um, and it also predicts that they'll be protected. That, that although they will constantly be under pressure from other nations and constantly treated badly, that they will continue to survive right up until they get their nation back, which so was in In the Bible, yep. they are a special people? They are absolutely a special people. They are what's called the chosen people. Now, I know that term's been, been appropriated by Christians over the last hundred or so years, but it was never meant about Christians. The term chosen people is about the Jewish people. And is that the Old Testament? It's actually, well, it depends. There's, there's some places in the New Testament, some places where, where Christ actually talks um, about the future and, and, and talks in prophetic terms where he also refers to the chosen people. And and again, my, my argument would be that he's still referring to the Jewish people when he uses that term. Mm. It's primarily in the Old Testament here. There's, there's different terms. Another term which means the same thing is the elect. And well, again, I, might get, I feel a bit grumpy at God now. <laughs> Well, there is a there is a different there is a different set of um of entitlements for Christians. So Christianity was formed obviously with the with the birth and death of Christ, or birth and crucifixion of Christ, and there's a whole different set of entitlements for Christians which add on to that. Um, and they're not any less important, and they're not any less special. But those terms are are quite uh quite clearly used in the Old Testament in relation to to the Jewish people. Now, I should say in saying that that that's a minority view. I hold that view quite strongly. You, as you know, I'm, I'm in the process of publishing a book where I talk about some of this stuff. If mm. you talk to most Christians, they'll have a different view on this. They mm. they claim that those terms are appropriated for, 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 for Christianity. I'm, I, I don't believe that, and I think I can demonstrate that that's not true. But mm. regardless of which you believe, it's clear that over the period of time since, uh, since um, the... Uh, 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 the late uh, seventh century, or the early seventh century. Sorry, the late seventh century, the the time that the Babylonians um, took possession of Israel, um, that they have been set apart and cast cast out and and set as a separate group of people that would be a distinct people for uh, a period of about two and a half thousand years before they came back into their own land, and that's exactly what's happened. Because you're not doing yourself a favour 
<laughs> in world opinion or politically. Me personally or in general? No, I'm thinking as if you regard yourself as a chosen people. You know well, what I mean? To be fair, I don't think they say that. They might. Okay. Some, yeah, some probably do. I don't think they do in general. That's a term that I'm using. Okay. Um, and, and, and of course, by the other- way, that, term, that, term's very, that term's often used by Christians of themselves. So yes. uh, you shouldn't be too smug about that. No, I don't. Um, tell me, maybe that's because I'm such a recent Christian. Um, I don't understand these things fully. Uh, the media, yep, hopeless, right? On this yeah, issue, no. so so you know, if you were to watch what's going on in the media at the moment, it's fascinating because there is a very clear selectivism going on in media coverage, both here and and obviously uh, in the global media. Um, you know, the, the the whipping boy at the moment on on my side of the debate is the BBC and CNN, who are actively doing whatever they can to try and portray Israel in the worst possible light and Hamas is, you know, some sort of freedom fighter organization that's, you know, sweetness and light, completely ignoring the fact that this whole thing started as a result of of the kidnap and murder of, of 1,200 um, Jews and, and internationals on the 7th of October. Um, and so there's a really clear media bias. Now, when I use that term media bias, that's a really easy term to throw around. And, you know, often people who don't agree with what the media is covering will say, oh, it's biased because you're not covering my perspective. But this is more than that, Rodney. This is this is a very clear, systematic uh, approach to this issue, which is about uh, presenting one narrative in a way which is as favorable as possible and one narrative uh, in a way which is as negative as possible. Um, interestingly, that's not new. So, so back in 2018, from memory, and I did a video on this, which is still online. A guy called Matty Friedman, who was with the Associated Press in the Middle East, um, uh, wrote a very, very interesting article, which he subsequently spoken to at various different events around the world, where he talked about what he observed going on um, with media uh, related to Israel, where it wasn't just the reporting of events; it was a very clear politicization. And, and, and the way in which newsrooms treated um, uh, anything which related to Israel. So even headlines, even the way that media would would treat events. So, for example, if a, if a group of terrorists hijacked and blew up a bus in Israel, uh, the headline would say, bus fire kills 10. You know, it, there, would, there would be mm. no reference in the headline or the story. Well, we've seen that with this amazing hostage return. With, with the where- Irish Prime Minister? Irish Prime Minister saying, oh, this kid was lost, like you left him at the mall. Yeah, so that's typical. I mean, I look at that now, I'm almost punch drunk from that sort of stuff because there is just so much of it. That's the latest example last few days. And the prisoners, the prisoners that Israel released weren't hostages. No, They weren't hostages. They were killers. No, but they're not being presented by the media as killers. No. Not, but these are people, you know, there was, there was a story I saw. This it's morning. a prisoner swap. <laughs> yes, it is. And 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 three prisoners for every for every Israeli, and these are innocent Israeli civilians versus, essentially, in some cases, murderers. In some cases, people who are in prison because they have murdered, they've killed. There was, and there who was have been charged, charged, prosecuted, and are now gone being, to court and found guilty. Yep, and the media is holding them up as if they're heroes, and it's some sort of, and, and attributing some sort of like for like equivalence to it, which is which is actually revolting. Um, and so that media narrative, and there, let me be clear, there are exceptions to this. There's organisations as you would expect, like Fox News in Australia. There are media, um, and and around the mm. world who are being much more objective in the approach that they're taking. 
Um, New Zealand, to its shame, isn't. Uh, either they're not carrying this stuff or if they do, they're carrying a pro-Palestinian perspective. I was pleased to see a couple of weeks ago um, there was a protest and in, in, there was going to be a Palestinian or pro-Hamas protest in Auckland. And I see that a pro-Israel group came out and a group of, there was a fairly large group of Māori that did a haka and scared the pro-Hamas. The pro that is amazing. i got to commend Brian Tamaki for that. <laughs> and, and he did and the same thing in Brisbane a few days he's ago. He's com commanding world attention. Yeah, yeah. And um, that, 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 that was great, but that's, that, that's unusual. Um, yes. So, um, so anyway, the question is, why is there a media bias? Um, you know, what, if, if there is a bias, and I would encourage people to actually just go and do a bit of analysis themselves, the question then becomes, well, why is that the case? And I come back to the reason that I've, I've, I've put forward over the last couple of questions, and that is that it's to do with a spiritual overlay to this thing, which is there is a, a, a predominating view uh, politically among younger people, and it tends to be younger people, as you would expect, because it's a developing view, um, that that Israel is the aggressor, that Israel is the culprit, that Israel is the baddie in this whole thing, that the, the, the this is about the Palestinians, that Hamas are just a subset of the Palestinians and are therefore freedom fighters, and that they have a responsibility to do what they can to promote the the the, the Palestinian cause as much as possible. And I think that's influencing what's happening in newsrooms. I think that's influencing headlines. I think it's I, I look at organisations like the BBC where it's clearly completely taken over CNN. Um, uh, but even here in New Zealand, it, it infects stuff media, it infects TVNZ, it affects Radio New Zealand, organisations that we once would have regarded as impartial have now crossed over, in my view, to the dark side. And at one level, it's very basic. It's anti-West, yep. anti-capitalist, yep. anti-prosperity, anti-success. Yep. And then... race theory. Yeah, oppressed and oppressor. Um, there is, I'll get a lot of pushback from RCR listeners, and I, I'm happy for I'm that. Sure. And I'm, I'm happy sorry. To, uh, yeah, you should apologize. No, because it's important that we have the debate and the discussion. Mm. And I don't resolve from that. And I think it's important that we state our positions clearly and give reasons and debate and discuss it. But it seems to me, and this is where I disagree with my colleagues, and I'm up for the debate. I am completely neutral on Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, I think it's terrible. It's just a meat grinder being propped up by the US. Yep. But I don't believe we can look at Israel and Gaza and say, oh, look, I don't like war. I don't like fighting. And I should just, we should just stay out of it and feel sorry for everyone involved and call for peace. It seems to me that this is one of those times when there is good and evil. Completely agree. And that you, by not standing against evil and not standing up for the good, you are supporting evil. And I'm not saying that one side is all evil and one side is all good. I agree. Because I agree with Alexander Solzhenitsyn as a Christian that good and evil doesn't divide people but runs through our own hearts. And you live in a system 
that encourages the good and restrains the evil in us. And that, to me, is the rule of law and the opposite of the rule of the mob, where you have democratic principles and everyone's treated equally and you have reason and debate. You live in an open society. And what that does is allow the good part of your heart to flourish and it suppresses and pushes down the bad part of your heart. Versus living in a tribal, totalitarian, tyrannical system, whether it be Eastern Germany or some tin pot dictatorship, or indeed the Gaza Strip, where the worst of you is brought out to the fore. And we see this with these crazed mobs, where they literally have mob justice occurring with people who are suspected of collaborating, of people who are suspected of being gay, of the suppression of women. And we see this evil part of the heart. So it's not, we're all God's creatures. The, um, the, but you have to choose a side. I agree. And the epitome of what you just said was one of the early protests in Auckland um, Phil Twyford was a speaker. I'm not sure whether you're aware of Yes, I, I'm very fair. That was shocking. Yeah, and so Phil Twyford, no, no retiring flower when it comes to being anti-Israel. He's He's got very strong views, which would be the opposite. Very strong world. credentials. But he came out and he made the comment, which, which I, you know, you and I would think was pretty reasonable. He said that 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 people shouldn't be hurt, though. That it, you know that that that, that what not that the killing of, of of innocent Israeli people wasn't justified. So it, it, this was on the back of already talking, saying all the things that the crowd would have wanted him to say about terrible Israel and oppressors and occupiers, but made the the comment that that the the murder of Israelis wasn't wasn't reasonable or acceptable, um, and had to have a police escort to be to be taken out of that protest. So that's how extreme that debate has become. It's not reasonable. It's not based on... And again, you have to think that's true. You have to see that. The other great litmus test I have is I ask myself, which side is John Minto on? <laughs> that's a good test. <laughs> if, I, if, I found, if I found myself uh, lining up with him, I'd be examining my assumptions furiously because I would find that most... Peculiar. Ashley, it's been a wonderful discussion. I hope listeners of all persuasions appreciate what we're trying to do here. I'm not trying to be a shell, um, but we are trying to have a discussion. Um, and I'm afraid that it's very hard to have a discussion with those who disagree with us. I haven't been able to set one up. People suggest names. Um, but I haven't got anyone to appear. I, I, I would be more than willing to have someone on the show to make the case for the the other side, if you like. But I fear that part of the feature of this is that a case that's not the way this is approached. It's like that identity politics. I'd love to be proved wrong. Ashley, uh, thank you for your clearly years of scholarship. Thank you for your learning. Um, you've certainly taught me a lot um, and given me much pause for thought. I've been speaking with Ashley Church on his understandings of the current conflict in the Middle East and what it means for us way down here, a long way away. Can we ever understand it? Do we have to take a position? It's confronting. 
because the view of New Zealand on this has shifted radically over my lifetime. Send me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at Radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Radio. Thank you so much for having me in your home, in your place of work, in your car. It's wonderful. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got Elizabeth Creevy. Now, she is, amongst other things, a keen gardener, a bread and be- breakfast host, and a member of the Incorporated Society South Wairapa Fenua Advisory Group. She's got a solar farm moving in the district, and she wants to share her concerns about it. Um, yes. Elizabeth, first of all, is the bread, bread and breakfast you got on your property there? Yes, it is. And whereabouts are you? I'm in Greytown. Oh, that's uh, a beautiful place. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people actually live in Greytown and drive to Wellington for work, don't they? They do. Over the hill. Yeah, or catch the, the train. Yeah, what's the hill called? Um, I've caught you. You have. My mind's gone blank. I've got, come. I've got all this other, all these other facts in my everyone, head. And everyone, and at home, everyone at home will be going nuts saying, I know the name. I know. I know I can't believe it. Um, it'll come to you if we don't think about it, and you can tell me. Um, yeah. And what's this South Wairapa Fenua Advisory Group? Well, we are um, a group of neighbours um, and concerned locals. Um, when I found out that, uh, well, let's not call them solar farms for a starter. They're not farms. They're power plants. This power, power plants. plant was going in around me. Oh, so you um, formed this group. I did. I went and knocked on the doors of everybody because uh, people didn't know. So this is a group not set up by the council to advise it. It's a group set no. up with it's concerns locals. over locals. this generating plant. Got yes. it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we've got together to um, learn about it, do something about it, <laughs> advise mm-hmm. people. 
Um, and yeah, and we've been so concerned what is the, about what we've found. What is the proposal? What is it? Well, we've got two um, power plants proposed to be right here, right on the doorstep of Greytown Village. Um, we've got one that's 235 hectares big. Another one that's directly around me is 190 hectares. So all up, that's 425 hectares or an acres, 1,050 acres worth of um, black mirrors, basically, <laughs> solar panels. Um, it, it, it's basically going to cover the land with intensive industrial structures. Yeah. Generating power. And literally, I will not be in the countryside anymore. How close to you is this supposed generating plant? Right over. I'm less than a hectare, and it's right around three sides no. of my property. You'll fry. I'm right up close and personal, personal with it. <laughs> yeah, so and it's so right in my back door. The solar panels that we see on people's roofs that are generating power from the sun, mm -hmm. that's really what we're talking about, those sorts of things. Glass, yeah, that. yeah. I, I, they're very different to that in, in the fact that um, you can put a solar panel on your house. And it doesn't um, It's not change, going to affect your neighbours. It's not going to affect the, the climate. Um, you're the one that's directly benefiting from that. Um, these are very different. Um, and... We basically, I don't think they should be near towns, near residences, and on food producing land or on top of water supplies, drinking water supplies. A thousand acres. Who's going to, who's proposing it and who's going to own it? Well, there are overseas companies that are registered in New Zealand. So Far North is the one down the road. That's less than a kilometre away from me. Um, that one is German, I think. But they've got, you know, Singaporean finances and all sorts of other people involved. Um, Helios, which is around me, is American. Um, they're all international companies. And, and all that is, money will go overseas. Yeah, and the council is keen on it? Well, the council um, supposedly can't take it. Well, they haven't taken a, a, a stand because there's two okay. ways that these these um, power plants can get consent, and one is through the council process. Um, the first one here has gone through the council process, and they have um, we finally got it to be um, publicly notified because they try to do this without public notification. And it got publicly notified, so we put in submission. And because of the standard of the submissions, they have chosen to get it referred to the Environment Court. So that takes the council out of the picture. They haven't had to come to a conclusion or a decision on it, but it's going to go to the Environment Court um, next year, early next year. And what is on the land at present? It is being used for farming, um, dairy farming, um, and I think the other one down the road is sheep. Yeah, it's open land, and the land open it, space. And the okay, and the land has been bought. No, they don't buy it. 
<laughs> they just lease it. They they pay the farmer three to four times the amount of the current lease that they're getting. Um, so it's very lucrative for the farmer. Um, and I think this is the way they get it around um, the Overseas Investment Authority. They're, you know, they, they're not actually ah. buying land. Ah. They're just leasing it. And do you know the facts and figures on how much power this thing's going to generate over the course of a year? These ones will do um, 100, the far north ones, 175 megawatts peak. So that's when they're brand new and on a hot, clear summer day. Of course, you know, they decrease as they age. And the Helios is 100 megawatt. And what, on average, they'd get a fraction of that, right, over a 24-hour period or over 365 well, days of the year? A, they're only there, it's only during daylight hours, so they're not producing anything during nighttime. Um, and mm. it is reduced by cloud, weather, cold, um, dust, mm. um, and age. They lose the ability to produce their maximum output as they age. Do we know if they're getting any subsidy or are they an economic financial proposition on their own? Well, that is the big question that I'd like to ask our new government because <laughs> ah. it's been hard to find out. You know, um, they get big government assistance overseas mm. and um, and in the US and in Europe that, that's starting to dry up because I don't think the governments are getting their returns as to what they're expecting. So, but we're new young fields for these companies. Um, yes. And so, so you yes, could so be I'm paying for the. It's like BlackRock. What was BlackRock all about? What is the deal there? Mm -mm. What assistance are these companies yeah. get? We you, don't know. You could, be, you could be paying for this monstrosity next door to you. Oh, absolutely. That's the horror. That's the horror. And also, um, you know, the, I know for a fact that um, the one around me is being personally funded by Urs Herzl, who is one of the eighth employee of Google, so he's a trillionaire. And um, he's private. He's kind of helping to fund this. And um, what government assistance have Google been given? You know, what guarantees? I've been, I've heard that they had some kind of deal to get cheap power for their databases. You know, what, what was that deal? Mm. You know, he was allowed in the country during the COVID lockdown while people couldn't go to funerals and get oh, home. I love, I love he was all. allowed to be in the, he was allowed in the country. So he's been, he's been, dealing this for a long time. I love your research skills. Oh, my goodness. What was his name again? Is Herzl. How do you spell that Herzl? H-O-Umlaut-L-Z-L-E. Mm. And he's like a billionaire many times over. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's one of the top execs in Google. Ah, and and they, of course, together. they want to greenwash. Everything, all, all, yes. It's his particular baby and and. Google, has he wants um, Google to be 100% green. And, um, well, I don't think they should be allowed to use our landscape and our history to greenwash their, their company, quite frankly. Well, you're the Indigenous people next door, right? They've got yeah. to care about that. Um, how high do they go off the ground? Well, these um, four and a half metres. So the size no. of 
single house size. These these are substantial. They're four and a half metres high at their highest point. They they will be on a single track axis, so they will seesaw like a big seesaw. They will seesaw and track the sun from east to west. Um, There'll be 33 inverter stations. 321,620 panels, all four and a half metres high. 321,620 panels. This is just on the far north. 321,000. No, you said that wrong because... No. 620 panels. 321,620 panels. It's, it's a, 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 you know, 235 hectares they're covering. It's Tell me, let's say it slowly. Honestly, <laughs> I've got to get my head around this and make sure you've got the commas in. Yeah, 321, 321, comma, 620. That's what, that's what they've stated on their application. 321,000 panels. Hmm. Yeah, it's quite a few. Four and a half metres high, rotating, inverters. Mm-hmm. I joked that you're going to be fried. There's going to be a lot of electromagnetic stuff coming out of there, right? Who yeah. knows? Who knows? When you there's, have a... There's certainly going to be a lot of heat because, you know, when light hits black. those panels, yeah. they're big black mirrors. And when light hit, only 20 or so percent of that light is converted to electricity. The rest is reflected as heat. So we will be in a heat island. Say that again. 80% of the light hitting those panels is reflected as heat. They're big black panels. So it's going to change the climate around there. It will change my climate. It will change my climate. Might be good for Dry out the ground. Yeah, you might need your glass house. <laughs> I think it'd be it would even fry the glass house. <laughs> what what happened when you went around the district knocking on doors and saying uh, about this? A did people know about it? No, people didn't really know about it. Um, and I rang all sorts of people. I rang every councillor, every person that I thought of influence, um, and nobody knew about it. Because it was an unnotified activity at that stage. And when you explained, as you did to us, to the locals, what this would be, how did people respond? All goody? No. <laughs> no. There was one or two that are just um, sold on solar, which I understand because we've had 20 years of a trillion-dollar industry flooding the market and tech magazines of how good these are. They don't give you the full story. So people believe, I think I used to believe that solar was the way. Oh, it's clean and green, but it ain't. You know, when you start to scratch the surface, I've got a nice big list of here of objections (laughs) and what effects that it could have. And um, we need to really, as a country, take it seriously and, you know, put in some regulations. At the moment, it's a totally unregulated industry. Well, I'm a funny person. 
in so many ways. <laughs> but one of the things I'm funny about is I love industry. And mm -hmm. like one of my things, mm -hmm. when I had time, mm -hmm. I just park the car up and watch a port. I love watching ports work and quarries work. So industry, always shipbuilding yards, mm -hmm. sort of my tourist thing. Because I just love how it all goes together and works like a little big train set. You've been. I hate those goddamn windmills. I hate isn't that interesting? On, uh, on a landscape. And I should think, isn't that amazing? There's wind blowing and they're making power. And I look at them and I think they're on a fool's errand in terms of the money that gets spent. I spend a lot of time trying to discover in Wellington how much had been spent on windmills and how much it was generating. And I hit a blank wall every which way because yeah. I think they're a financial and economic disaster. Yeah, I, I don't think, yeah. Also an environmental disaster, not just in terms of landscape values, but in terms of the resources that are used to make them. Yeah. I look at solar panels. I haven't studied it, but they seem to me a complicated bit of kit with a lot of fancy chemicals and minerals all in it to make oh, it Oh, huge. And that's, not, that's going to use a lot of oil and diesel and petrol oh, to make a solar panel. The entire thing is based on oil. You yeah. can't make them. Um, you know, you've got the mining for a start. Yeah. You know, that that is huge. Mining, transport, refining, production, installation, it's all based on oil. You can't do it without oil. No. You've got the humanitarian costs of the mining, the refining and the production. You've got the environmental costs of mining, refining, production, operation and end of life because these things are toxic. You know, overseas in, in, in like um, California, they have to be put into a toxic dump. They're wow. full of rare earth minerals and metals that can leach into the ground and are toxic. They're forever chemicals. So once they get into your system, you can't get rid of them and they oh. accumulate. And um, what, what do you know of the economic life of these panels? Well, they only last 25 to 30 years at the max. That's They'll be lucky if they last 25. Because they found so, with those windmills in Wellington, they found that they were lasting nowhere near their recommended uh, or expected lifespan because of the winds and, of course, it's on the bearings, you know. The bearings yeah. are taking a huge strain because the big propellers sitting there trying to generate power. And you think of those early dams 100 years on nearly and they're still just pouring out power. Oh, um, absolutely. Those dams were incredible. Incredible. And, yeah. and same with coal. Um but these things. I don't think they'll last for 30 years either. No, but because you could these, be these are quite thin, and we've got intensive winds in New Zealand. This is a high wind area, too. Um, and they're just seesaws, they're great big four and a half meter high sails to catch the wind. You know, that's going to crack. And this dopey billionaire over there, he's not looked into it, right? 
It's been oh, a two they, they, these are all just somebody's investment portfolio. They're not yeah. building these to save the planet. They're building these for money. They're mm. going to make a lot of money out of these. Because they could walk away, and in 25 years you'll still be a young woman, and you'll have a toxic dump decaying and rancid because who's going to clean it up? Well, this is it. We don't know what the deals are. We don't know what deals they've signed with farmers and what advice they're getting because overseas now they're trying to get because they've had 20 years' experience and so I've been looking at what they've been doing over there. They are trying to get um, these companies to ensure that there is cash in country ready to do the cleanup because they don't they're leasing the land they could we could have a big earthquake shatter yes. them all over the ground they could just declare bankruptcy and bugger off mm. you know mm. what assurance have we got that this will be cleaned up you know and and these companies the these fields often these power plants change hands quite a few times apparently overseas mm. um that means the farmer's going to have to sign new contracts every time has any representative of the company or their agents approached you? Um, on the the one that's going to the Environment Court, no. They've only knocked on one or two doors really down there. Um, they haven't done any community consultation. Um, the one around me did a community drop-in session which was just generic high school grade information about how a solar power plant runs. Um, I was promised that there would be actual on-site information, but there wasn't. Um, yeah, very little, very little. Tell me about the size of your property again. I'm only a hectare. So you've got a hectare, you've got a house. Yep. You've got a nice garden. Yeah, and a and B, B The B and b is attached to the house or separate? Yes, Se attached, to the, attached to the house. And then on three sides, solar panels. Yeah. And, and those solar yeah. panels, they will stretch in front of you, I'm trying to think, hundreds and hundreds of metres. Yes, I mean, you'll look out. It'll just be a sea. Yeah. Sea of solar panels, four and a half metres high, mm. tilting in the, tilting yeah. as the sun moves. Yeah. And I that can tell actually, you, it's horrific. That's ruined your property. Well, it, absolutely. And as a, having been a travel consultant in my past, um, that's exactly what people want to know. Where is the industry? Because they don't want to go to the countryside and, and stay in a and b around the industry. You know, you go, no. and if you're in doubt, you won't even stay in that town. You'd go and stay in the next village over because you want to go, you're getting out of town, away from industry for a nice break. So basically, personally, my income, and there's other B&Bs around me um, and in town. I mean, we're a tourist-based yes. village. Yeah. And I think it will impact 
I can't see how as well as as well as the B and Bs around. How far out of grade can I? Let's face it, and our the prices of our properties. Oh yes, people work all their lives to pay for their properties, and um, research has shown that if you're anywhere near one of these things, you're going to be at least thirty percent down in value, and you're going to have a very small market of people that would be even interested. Are they going to have a high fence to protect this? It'll people? be a, about a two-metre security fence. And that's, that'll run that's around pretty. you too. Yeah. <laughs> and we think that, and they think a, a, a few rows of pittosporins or something is going to kind of mitigate that. Well, it's not. <laughs> you know, simple as that. Well, a two-metre fence is ugly. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, my goodness. They're scared about you hopping over and pinching their power or breaking a bit of glass. <laughs> this is it. There'll be um, security okay. lighting on. What you are you doing? Security. What are you doing to stop it? Well, I've made. I've done. I've made flyers. I've knocked on doors. I've put on. Um, a notice on the community Facebook page. I've um, rung people. Um, we've got this group that we, we've written submissions. Um, we've run an information evening for the community. Um, we're we're doing as much as we can. Basically, <laughs> I've been into. I've actually been interviewed on Q and A by Fenner Owen. Um, I. Don't know how much more I can do, <laughs> but mainstream the, media just doesn't want goes, to know. When it goes, no, solar's good. Shut up. Mm. Um, you can't, you can't go across. You're the little solar. people. But you know, in the environment court, do you get do you get to present in the environment court? I think we're still working on that um, because this is all new. Um, I think you can have a chance to speak a bit on your submission um but we're still in the process mm. of working out who and which submissions and how we do all that um and also just trying to find oh, oh. some legal representation because it, you know it is a court you know this is the test yes. of our uh, district in, in the normal how far out are you from Greytown? I think I've asked that. How far out of Greytown? I am um, just over a kilometre from the main road. So, so basically, will this be visible? It, 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 you should will be you able see to this see it. The main road? You should be able to see one of them from from the main road entering from Wellington into Greytown, mm. and basically, the the field, the power plant around me. Is going right up to the edge of the village, so the high school and the medical centre would only be a few hundred metres away, less than a kilometre. Yeah, walking distance. Yeah. Well, I mean, if this was a if this was a petrochemical plant or something, yeah, there'd be an expectation they'd buy everyone out. You would right? imagine, wouldn't because you? Because you can't have you you can't. Mm. I mean, you can't even imagine it being zoned for this. Well, it's not. They're doing are, it on a rural um, zone. It's they're they're keeping it as rural farm, land, right? and it's just a change of use. 
And they're, they're, yeah, they're trying to peddle it like they're increasing the productivity of the farm. They truly believe the they're going to improve the soils. Yeah. No. They had they found somebody to write a report to say they're going to improve the soil. And and it's just farcical. Well, I hope that absolutely farcical. They're gonna America over in America they've found when they've decommissioned on the rare occasion, um the ground's compacted, um it's it's lost its productivity because you know it's been baked oh, in the heat. No, no, um, no. possible toxic yeah. chemicals leached into it. Um, it kills the the microorganisms in the soil, um, and and it takes. And not only that, where they're not always totally removed when they're decommissioned. You know, the, there's miles no. of wires in the ground. Um, and not only that, the inverter and substation footprints are hail sites. So, you know, this is food-producing oh land and it should be preserved for future generations. And we've got a really high water table here, less than a metre down most of the time, and I'm drinking it. And if anything leaches into that water, I'll be drinking it. And that's not right. Have is it is it one or two farms across the two sites that they're leasing from? Um, there's one farm around me. The other one is, I think it is owned by a number of people. Yeah, so they've kind of put together okay. adjacent land. And the farm. The farmer next door to you, he or they are already leasing it. God, I'm getting pissed. They've already, so, already yeah, that's already leased it out at the moment to a, another farmer who's running dairy on it. Yeah. Yes. So he will no longer be able and to lease ha it. Yes. Have you spoken to the landowner? You don't see them. He knocked on my door to tell me that this was happening just over a year ago. Um, but he is no longer he is no longer speaking to any of the neighbours. He was shocked. Okay. I think they've been shocked that we haven't been happy about it. <laughs> mm. It's just astounding. And but, the dairy, you know, the, the the man with the dairy herd. Yep. What's he say? Um, he's he's not thrilled. He's not thrilled by all accounts. I haven't spoken to him personally, so um, but I, I hear that he's not impressed. Well, you know, he's no longer going to be able to run his operation at the same size. So no, he's going to have to down. And this is the problem. Because the, they're getting three to four times the, the rental value from the land, it snowballs, you know. Um, you, you're squeezing genuine farmers out of competition because they can't compete with those mm. rentals the next farm you only need to you must you'd have to really love sitting on the tractor when you can look over the fence and see that your neighbor is earning three to four times the amount of land than you yes. can you know and so you can see how it snowballs that people go sod this for a joke i don't want to farm right next to an industrial site i'm going to put mine into industrial yes. you know elizabeth I started out this interview. I'm talking to Elizabeth 
Creevy. And my intention with this interview was to be mm, skeptical and a bit tough on you, you know, soul is wonderful, what's your problem, Nimby? As soon as I heard your voice and as soon as I understood what was happening, I'm 100% with you. Mm. Well, please let me have a wee, wee chance to just list a few more of our objections and concerns for the land. Um, there's a fire risk. These things are heat of course. generating and wherever you've got, arcing can occur basically anywhere within an electric generating field, you know, where there's a break in a wire, a connection, overheating, whatever. Um, and fires do happen in solar fields and um, they're generally underreported overseas. And our fire service has no policy on how to fight a fire in a, in a solar power plant, that we do not have a policy. And if even if you've got solar panels on your house, the, the New Zealand Fire Service policy is to let it burn. So mm -hmm. they will watch and stand by, but they will let it burn. And I can understand why, because they don't stop generating power just because they're on fire. And, and you cannot ask chemicals. people to, and there's horrendously toxic chemicals, plumes of toxic smoke that would land on your land, get into your drinking water, land on people's roofs, and a lot of people around here collect their drinking water from their roof. Um, and now we've got a volunteer fire brigade. Overseas um, countries, they often have um, requirements that firefighters have to be in a fully sealed suit with breathing apparatus to fight these fires. Well, our local volunteer brigade ain't going to have all that. No. You know, that that's a fire risk is a real possibility. And we, who's liable if, if it burns my house down, you know, if the... If the, it starts a grass fire and it burns my house down, is it the farmer or the, the company? Mm. <laughs> Who's looking after, you know, the damage? I, I don't know. And they can't take all those toxic fumes away once they're out there and in the soil and in the water. They're there. And our soil and our water should be protected for future generations. And, of course, you know they'll have experts to come along and they say, there, there, dearie, everything's okay. Oh, but, yeah. of course, we know that's probably bullshit and in 50 years' time we'll be all dropping dead and they'll say, oh, yeah, no, that was that thing, we got oh, that oops. wrong. Yeah, oops. And we'll also be living in increased wind because they have to remove all the windbreaks. They can't have those trees shading them. So all our windbreaks will go. So um, we'll be under larger pressure of wind. There could be wind tunnelling and these things produce turbulence depending on how high and which angle the wind is coming. Um, we're in a high wind area. And really these things, these arrays, these rows of panels should be, in my opinion, <laughs> They should be considered buildings. They're just the same as a hay, a whole a pole-driven hay shed, except they've got a rotating roof. But they're not under they don't have and to come under building standards. 
And and there's what a thousand acres of yes, intensive infrastructure covering the ground, and they should require wind tunnel testing because they're creating mm-hmm. wind issues. And there are, and if we have some more summers like we've just had, the water was the ground was water laden. How are they going to stay in the ground if they're just pole driven poles? They're pile driven poles Jesus. with these four and a half meter high sails on them in a high wind area. But there's no requirement for a wind <laughs> assessment apparently because it's an unregulated thing. Um. We've already talked about the heat. Twenty percent, though. They those um, panels. It'll be twenty degrees hotter around those panels and the ambient temperature. No. Yep. So your your soil will be bitterly affected by this. Just the heat and oh. the 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 moisture will presumably be sucked out of your soil. Absolutely, I believe so. Well, there's another one. Here we are. Possible Wi-Fi interference. Now, metal and glass structures are known to interfere with Wi-Fi connectivity. And these days, people work from home, run businesses from home, rely on on it for social networking, social contact. And more and more of us, me included, do not have copper wire telephones. So Mm -hmm. there goes... That you know, we risk losing our emergency access. How do you ring one 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 if you've got and tell them Wi-Fi interference (laughs) or somebody's had a heart attack or something? You know, it's just it's just you wouldn't you just wouldn't credit it. We've covered the tourism, the recycling. Just does my head in because they're in, people keep telling me, oh, but they're just glass. You can recycle windows. Well, these are not just glass. These are incredibly complex silicon panels. Um, they're difficult to recycle. You can you can take a off the aluminium frame mechanically, but basically to get anything out of it, they have to do a, a series of acidic leaching to get all these minerals out. Huge heat which you can't use renewables to do. Um, There's not enough recycling units around the world. There's none in Australia, none in New Zealand, no plans for any. Um, It's incredibly expensive. And even what you do manage to recycle is not as high a quality as what went into it. Simple as that. So basically what these companies do, they sell off old panels to third world countries and they have to deal with all the toxic waste. Now, that's not right. Or they just dump them, like they do with the wind turbine blades, cover them with dirt, let them leach into the soil and water somewhere else, out of sight, out of mind. Well, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, environmentally conscious. Isn't this supposed to be (laughs) making a clean, green world? Well, it certainly isn't. We're going to lose... We're going to lose biodiversity. More porks, there's, there's just not enough native birds around here. More porks we do have. What do they do? They nest in mature trees, and that's the very thing they're going to be cutting down because they can't have them shading their panels. 
Um, not only that, we just know this is a this is an ever-moving sea of black panels of glass emitting heat. Well, you know birds aren't going to go anywhere near that. So what yeah. bird life we have around here will reduce. Simple as that. There's all the possible leaching of metals, and I know these metals are, um, well, A, there's the anti-reflective coating, which are nanoparticles. I'm yet to do some more research into that, but I can't imagine that doesn't wear off at some stage. But the water has to, the, these mineral compounds inside can dissolve in water because they test them for that. And to get in, they have, you know, there has to be cracks or something in the panel for the water to get in so that they can leach. Well, apparently there's a new report out that of, of all the fields that they tested, 81% of them had nano crack, uh, not nano, uh, micro cracks in the panels or faults in the panels anyway. So they're, they're not infallible. Um, and all you need is like hail, storm, earthquake, wind damage, cyclone, they create cracks and that's when you're going to risk the leaching into your soil and your water. It's just, apart from our pop and the noise. Oh, well, there <laughs> you, know, you go. Our, our district plan basically talks about loudness, but it doesn't talk about the constant low-level um, industrial noise. Mm. And that will be an electrical buzzing all day, from morning to night. Do you have your council, do you have a Greytown council or are you part of Wellington? South Wairarapa District. South Wairarapa. Yeah. Are the councillors getting awake to this? Um, I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm hoping so. We mm. certainly invited councillors to the information evening. Um, and mm. we're trying to get the message out there, you know. Um, but, well, you know, it's going too. to the environmental courts. It's out of their hands. And then let me even talk about fast-tracking. Fast-tracking takes it right out of the council's purview yes. altogether. Now, that's that needs to stop. That's another question we need to ask our new Who's government. your local MP? Um, Buttercup, Butterfield or something his name is, isn't it? Mm. New, new national MP. Hmm. Well, get him on it. Um, presumably Google, Mr. G Billionaire Google, presumably he's getting some big government offset back in America yeah. because he's producing green energy. I and that'll so. be a big a big money spinner for them or a write-off for them because, as you say, they're burning up coal in the US or India or somewhere to drive their data centre. And therefore, they produce quote green energy in some yep. rubbish green accounting framework, which is yep. bureaucratic rubbish. And he therefore gets a a tick on yep. his green card. Yeah, oh. he, he looks squeaky clean. And, and the Wire Rapper Valley at the moment has got seven renewable projects throughout the valley. We've already got. We got there's two wind farms, one of 20 turbines. The other one, the Genesis one, they're going to have 286 turbines. Carterton's going to have 
two the same size as ours and a third one that snuck through council without consent, without notification, um, and the two in Greytown so far. And we know that we know that there's been other companies asking it's other farmers. Just bless Gigia every time you go to bed and drink your contaminated water that you're living in a green oh, paradise. I know. It's just horrific. And that it's that's that toxic dump of a thousand acres surrounding you is really just the Garden of Eden. Elizabeth Elizabeth Creevy, there she is. I want you to let us know and keep us up to speed with any developments. Yeah. Uh, because we love your activism, we love your enthusiasm, and this thing should be stopped. Yes, I think so. Thank you. We're giving it our best shot. <laughs> that was Elizabeth Creevy from Greytown. Oh, my goodness. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we had a bit of real talking to us because isn't it wonderful? You think, oh, solar farm, so nice, all those little panels waving in the in the in the sunlight, generating us nice clean power. And then you think of a thousand acres of it on three sides. Oh my goodness, that is a toxic nightmare. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll keep up to speed on this because. It's a story of the ages about how this green energy policy gets out of whack and becomes anything but. Thank you for listening. Send us a text 2057. Email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Well, that's quite a show. Uh, you're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, send us a text at 2057. Email me at inbox at rallycheck.radio. Heavy, heavy, heavy going through the conflict in the Middle East, but also heavy thinking about the divided nation here over the issue and the protests and the the craziness it seems to invoke. Um, hard to understand. I'd appreciate your thoughts. Also, we learned from Elizabeth Creevy that a solar farm is nothing really like a solar farm, particularly if it's next door. It's a thousand acres of glass and chemicals. And they rotate. They're, what she you say, four meters high. And there's 300,000 panels over. Oh, my goodness. What a story. And I imagine if we didn't have these green offsets and make yourself look green, just be grass with cows eating it, producing milk making food but nope government overseas pours money in look green be green offset and so we take a whole lot of oil a whole lot of coal we make solar panels and feel good about it don't worry about the neighbors don't worry about the countryside oh we're going to keep in touch on that one she was wonderful elizabeth creevy solar farms didn't have time for a mailbag, and I had a big one. I do apologize because I love the mailbag, as you know, but I'll pick it up uh, Thursday. Till then, it's goodbye for me, and thank you for coming along.
Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. 